Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When I was when I was when I was dedicated to the cause of on which by the way uh luke is here this is amazing it's only been what like a month and a half since we've even since we've uh we've had him in here you know what i uh i was thinking you know man i'm done just doesn't really interest me much anymore but i I started watching the news one night and i just saw a crowd of people just holding up luke signs you know like get luke back on conspiracy normal on news channel five man and i was just like it got hairy around here too. Like they were mad at us. Yeah, like, we have people like you know coming out here with pitchforks and throwing in like hot oil into the banging studio on the doors. And, the whole podcast. Yeah, yeah it's hard to do a podcast from the picketers everywhere. <laughs> and, and I was like, you know, I, I'm like the real brunt, like the real hearth of this show. So you are, man. Uh, <laughs> you are. You're, you're the glue that keeps everything together. You know. Yeah. That you you fill it with so much mirth and joy and fun. <laughs> But just so I, everyone, everyone loves you, Luke. Thanks, and and thank you, guys. <laughs> <laughs> oh, bro, moment. <laughs> that was a little touching. <laughs> Play some background music. <laughs> anyway, welcome back to Conspiracy Normal, guys. We tonight we have Dr. Timothy Furnish coming back on, and we're going to do about an hour or so with him, and then we're going to come back and we're going to talk about some things that are going on in the news. Uh, and There's a lot going on, as 
usual. There's like tons of stuff happening right now. So we're going to talk to Dr. Furnish tonight about Sufism, which is uh, pertinent to some of the stuff that's happening right now, uh, especially the is- Islamic aspect. But uh, so I think that will be interesting. But I wanted to talk just a little bit about a trip to New York City that I just did. How was that? It was it was good. It was good. You know, I was a little trepidatious about flying in on September 11th. As it should be. To New York City, you know. (laughs) 15th anniversary. (laughs) No problem there, right? But, uh, man, it is a huge, crazy, busy, absolutely historic place. There is so much going on there all the time. And we primarily, it was my my friend Harden, who's been who sat in on the show one time with us. Um, we went there and he wanted to go to the Jets game. So the first Jets game of the season. So that's why we went on September 11th. Um, he, I did not, I didn't really want to go to the game. I didn't want to, you know, cause it's really expensive. And so I went and took the subway down to South Manhattan from where was I? Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania station took the subway down there and walked to South ferry where I got on the ferry boat to go to see the statue of Liberty, go to see Ellis Island, which was really cool. Found my grandfather's name in the records. That was neat. Um, and also at Liberty Island got to, of course, see the statue of Liberty and kind of find out that Liberty, Statue of Liberty is built off an old fort. And this old fort had like said to have Masonic uh, inscriptions below when they found some Masonic inscriptions from the people that built it, which was thought was, was pretty damn interesting as well. So, you know, uh, got off the ferry, got back to Manhattan, uh, walked over to ground zero. That was, really moving especially on that day of all days to be down there on the 15th anniversary of september 11th yeah. uh if anyone's not familiar with what they have there they have the imprint of the they have the imprint of where each tower was the foundation yeah the foundation mm-hmm. and it's now a it's now a sculpture and it's a waterfall and they have on the sides they have the inscriptions of everyone's name that died on September 11th in the Twin Towers. And there were flowers, uh, lots of American flags, people crying. um, And it was immensely crowded. Saw the new Freedom Tower, which was just huge, man. I mean, the thing, as I have found out now, that's the tallest building in the United States. It now surpasses the Sears Tower. It's 1,776 feet. Which one? The, The new Freedom Tower. That replaced oh. the World Trade Center. Oh, I didn't so even know the they built something. Site. Yep. Huh. So it's a little bit of ways. It's a little like it's close to the to the memorial. Um, and then I walked away from there. I went down a little side road called VZ Street. And that's where all the nine eleven truthers were. And I got some pictures of of people holding up signs. Uh, heard some snippets of conversations. Mm-hmm. Uh, somebody tried to hand me a brochure and says, read up about it. And I'm like, I'm already there. Don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> and so then I went to walk through South Manhattan uh, and got back on the subway, went through Times Square, met up with Harden and uh, 
got to see uh, the went to the top of the Rockefeller Center, saw the big statue of Prometheus uh, that's there in Rockefeller Center, which is really interesting, and then went up to the top of the building. And you can see where you could see the, you know, the, the laser beams that they beam where the towers used to be. So that was really cool as mm. well to see that. Uh, Monday, we ended up meeting with Peter Robbins and very uh, serendipitous that uh, he just happened to be going there at the same time we were going there. So we got to meet up with him. We ended up walking all the way through South Manhattan uh, went back to the same place that I was. He showed us like the Trinity Church. Got to see the grave of Alexander Hamilton. Got to see the grave of Robert Fulton, who's one of the guys that well perfected the steam engine. Uh, and Trinity Churches is one of the oldest churches in the United States. Walked over to Wall Street and saw all the kind of like barriers that they have up there to prevent car bombs and truck bombs. Uh, which was interesting. Some guy tried to hand us his mixtape while we were at, while we were sitting there in front of the federal. I'm hall. surprised that didn't happen like twelve times. <laughs> Oddly enough, though, unlike in Minneapolis where we got offered cocaine, then it's uh, <laughs> that didn't happen this time. But uh, we did. Somebody did try to give us hand us a mixtape. We saw Federal <laughs> Hall where Washington, George Washington, was inaugurated as the first president because at the time the Capitol was New York City. Uh, saw some of the uh, the courthouse buildings that were around in that area, and then what was really cool was was walking past those courthouses, and all of a sudden you're in Chinatown, and there's all these. Uh, it, it's it literally is Chinatown. There's people doing Tai Chi, uh, <laughs> people playing ping pong. They're playing these old Chinese instruments, with really unique sounds. Uh, statue of Sun Yat-sen sitting in the middle of the little square there. Walked through there, went to a little market, and you cross one street over from Chinatown, you're suddenly you're in Little Italy. And we walked through Little Italy. You saw little the Italy. Sopranos. Yeah, I saw the Sopranos. <laughs> I think I might have saw and seen Tony Danza. I saw a guy that looked a lot like him anyway. And walked through there and then walked through the Bowery, saw where CBGBs used to be. We ended up in St. Mark's Place, and I ended up at a bar called Manitoba's, and uh, we all got pretty sufficiently trashed. Sloshed, bro. <laughs> yeah, <Nice>. sloshed, bro. <laughs> and Tuesday was seeing some other parts of the city. Got to go to to, to Brooklyn for a little bit. Uh, saw Manhattan Island from Brooklyn, which was really, really neat. And met up with Peter again on Wednesday and went, walked through Central Park, learned about some of the history there. Uh, saw the Dakota building where John Lennon was shot, uh, Strawberry Fields, and found out that um, the reason why Strawberry Fields, which is that big star that says Imagine in the middle, the reason why that that is placed strategically in Central Park is so that uh, Yoko Ono and Sean Lennon, his son, can see that from their from their window. Ah, that's what Peter's told us. So very cool. Lots of discussions with Peter talking about Rendlesham Forest, UFOs, uh, James Forrestall, uh, punk rock, all kinds of cool stuff. He was actually staying at the apartment of the uh, drummer for the Blue Oyster Cult. Nice. He's good friends with his sister. Uh, Helen Wills was associated with them. <clears throat> so 
flew back on Wednesday and back to Nashville. And I can tell you this. I liked the city. I enjoyed the trip, but I'm so glad to be back here <laughs> because like New York is incredibly expensive. Oh yeah. I and can it never, is just way too many people mm-hmm. for me. I mean, it's always fun to come and visit someplace like that, but it's just like, I, by the end, I think by Wednesday, I think I was like, I'm ready to get back home, <laughs> get back to, get back I to regular that. life, you know? Well, you know what, Adam? I went to Oxford, Mississippi. Congratulations. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> and Michigan. And you've been traveling all over the place, T- man. Toledo, Ohio, to be fair, but that's right beside Michigan. Oh, yeah, that's true. Looks such a one-upper. <laughs> yeah, New York, whatever. Oxford, Oxford, Mississippi. Mississippi, home of Old Miss, man. That's right. And William I, Faulkner. I, I got I got hit on by some weird old lady in the hardware store. <laughs> well, that's because you're just such a stud. Like, <laughs> well, you know, I was all dirty and I was buying tools. So, oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, let's call it there. We're gonna get Doctor Furnish on, and guys, we will be right back on the other side on Conspiracy Normal. <laughs> And welcome back. We are here with a return guest tonight. And back in, what well, I think it was May we had him on, Rob, uh, to talk about uh, Islam and all that. Yeah, it must have been. It wasn't that long ago. Okay. And in that interview, we talked about kind of the basics of Islam. In fact, I call that, that, inter- that interview Islam 101. To kind of get to the idea of what it is, the different sects that are involved, and we talked about some other aspects. And tonight, I wanted to talk to Dr. Timothy Furnish about Sufism. But first of all, Dr. Furnish, welcome back to uh, Conspiracy Normal. Glad to be back. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Uh, I, I was thinking before we get into about Sufism, I kind of wanted to get your thoughts on what happened yesterday and we're recording this on Sunday, the 18th, but what happened yesterday on the 17th in Minnesota, this stabbing that took place by this Somalian uh, that apparently has wounded nine people. I believe that no one has been killed, but apparently he went into this mall and Asked people if they were Muslims, or some reports are that he asked several people, some reports are that he asked one, and he just began to stab people. And now ISIS has taken responsibility for it. So I kind of wanted to get your thoughts on that. Well, yeah, that's that, that, that modus operandi, although thankfully not the scale of slaughter, is exactly what happened in Kenya a couple of years ago, if you recall. Right. Uh, and that, that was a fellow connected with. Um, al-Shabaab, which basically is the same ideology as ISIS. Uh, they just don't have as much money and as many weapons. Um, look, the thing is, the media gets all caught up in this idea that it has to be terrorism. And same thing with happened, you know, with the explosion, uh, the bombing explosion uh, in New York yep. uh, this weekend. Uh, is it terrorism? Well, look, in one sense, that question is quite irrelevant because the media and most of the people in government – uh, very few of whom are willing to speak honestly about this issue, basically define terrorism, in this case, Islamic terrorism, as did someone go on uh, a trip to Raqqa 
and kiss al-Baghdadi's ring, uh, you know, sh- uh, uh, swear bayah, allegiance to ISIS, which you can now do online, um, and then get some sort of, you know, directives from ISIS or al-Qaeda or any of the other 50 or so groups on the State Department terrorism list that are Islamic. And this, 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 this paradigm is just stupidly, it's just stupid and ignorant and outmoded. You don't have to be formally connected to one of these groups, okay? All you have to do is read the parts in the Quran that say to kill the infidel, to behead the infidel. Um, and if you do things like that, you will be a shaheed uh, who will achieve martyrdom, heaven, uh, uh, by waging jihad fi sabilallah, jihad in the path of Allah. Uh, all you have to do is read examples of how Muhammad himself um, ordered uh, you know, people into battle, uh, fought in battles, ordered people beheaded. All you have to do is read those sorts of things and decide that you're going to act on them. You don't have to be formally given directives or orders, um, you know, via secret coded message right. from bin Laden or or, or, or al-Baghdadi or one of these guys. So this is increasingly what we're seeing, okay? The literalist wing of Islam, which is not a majority, but which is quite extensive, uh, basically could pop up at any time, anywhere, because it's not dependent on being connected to any group. It's just dependent on someone deciding that I will adopt the same viewpoint as that group. Okay. And, and, and what, what, what Al Qaeda and ISIS and, and the Taliban and Boko Haram and such and, and any group and Ansar al Deen in its title, that sort of thing do is they basically say, we are the good Muslims because we take the, the, the passages about jihad and we take them literally and we act on them. And the rest of you Muslims that don't aren't real Muslims, right? Now, this is, thankfully, I think at this point, still a mi- minority view in Islam, but it is by no means an un-Islamic view. It's, it, it, it's historically and theologically quite mainstream in Islam to see this view of jihad. So, so basically what you have are these communities. You have guys in San Bernardino and, and, and people in Minneapolis and people in Chattanooga and, and, and people in Boston that just decide – Although I guess you could argue about the San Bernardino thing, uh, but 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 a lot of these attacks in the last few years in America um, that, that that are waged basically by Muslims in fighting what they see as jihad uh, are this sort of thing. They're not really formally connected or driven or or or, or um, there's no command and control from any groups. It's right. just sort of well, they used to call it lone wolf, but lone wolf actually is not accurate either because they aren't lone wolves. They're they, they, I mean they're all operating under the same worldview. Right, it's a very loose. There's a very loose connection. Well, yeah, I guess in a sense, but but you know, you notice it's not everyone. They're not doing it yelling Deus Volt and doing it in the name of the Latin Mass. Okay, uh, mm-hmm. they're not doing it in the name of Ganesh or any of the Hindu gods. I mean, to be fair, they aren't even doing it in the name of I don't know uh, Christopher Hitchens and atheism. They're they're doing it for one particular religion that has a particular problem with this issue. Right, and you know, and until it, and until the media co- and the media and the government, more importantly, well, maybe not. I was going to say more importantly, but the media and/or the government come to admit this, um, we're going to continue to have this problem because we're not addressing the problem. We look at. I was watching TV today, you know, Fox and CNN, and mainly Fox and CNN, and all the discussion of this was all process, not substance. You know, what kind of bomb was it? What kind of knife did they use when the guy was attacking? What kind of rounds did they shoot him with? This is all process. It's not substance. Substance is why does this continue to happen around the world? And you know what? Let me, let me, can I say one more thing on this real quickly? Sure. 
you know, there's been a couple of articles published recently, and the president is fond of repeating this this quote unquote data, which is that you know you have a better chance of getting mauled by a polar bear and a regular bear in the same day than being killed by a terrorist. You know, I kidding a little bit, but I mean, basically it was something like um, you have a better chance of being hit by lightning, right, or drowning in your bathtub or something like that, or being you know being mauled by zombies than you do of dying uh, at the hands of terrorists. Well. Okay, that's great, but that still doesn't make the people that are dead come back to life in Paris and in San Bernardino and other places like that. Um, and two other issues about that: one, it just totally totally ignores the fact that the, of what ISIS and Al Qaeda and Boko Haram and all these other groups are doing in the Islamic world to other Muslims and to Christians, for that matter. And the third thing it totally does not take into account is how many um, how many attempted attacks and killings have been thwarted by the FBI and other, 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 other entities. Okay. It doesn't even take that into effect or into account, I should say. Um, so, so that's just kind of a really, frankly, stupid argument that the president makes, but that's sort of in the pot with many of the other stupid arguments he makes. <laughs> that's a whole other issue. Whole other yes, story. We don't have time for that. That's a whole other show. <laughs> but I, I, one thing I do want to say is that I remember when Chattanooga happened and I, you know, I'm from there and I remembered thinking to myself, please don't let it be a Muslim. Please don't let it be a Muslim. Just repeating that in, in my head. And then all of a sudden it was. And in that particular case, and I think really in all these cases, you could really say this is that you have these guys that, uh, maybe they, they fail somewhere in life or they're uh, usually they're young and they are looking for somewhere to belong and they find this hope. And it's very easy now to go on for these guys. I wouldn't know how to do it, but to go on there and, and find inspire and to literally be inspired by, by ISIS. And then ISIS does take credit for it because really, they really did inspire it. Right. Well, I'm not sure that I agree that they're all failures. What I would agree is they're, they're, they're going, I would tend to, although I'm a historian, not a sociologist or psychologist, they, they, a lot of them, I think you could probably say, have this sense of what, what they call anime, right? Where they feel like they don't fit in. Because particularly right. in the West, a lot of the people that wind up involved in this are second generation. You know, it's not, it's not their parents who came here from, from Palestine or Jordan or Pakistan. It's the kids, interestingly enough, um, who feel like they're sort of caught between cultures and don't fit in. And, and, yeah. and, and, you know, but you know, part of it too, I think is that unfortunately, a lot of the ideology of the Islamic, uh, the people who want to bring the caliphate, the people that, that, that say the West has been oppressive, you know, all the stuff that the president says, uh, far too often, frankly, um, is, that ideology, frankly, dovetails quite well with the Islamic viewpoint that the Islamic world is oppressed. I mean, you know this. I mean, for God's sake, how many people do you hear both on the right and the left, probably more on the left, but a lot on the right, who still think that, you know, Islamic terrorism is a function of the United States invading the Middle East? Okay. Like jihad didn't exist when Muhammad and his armies brought down the Byzantine Empire. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, was, I want to tell Ron Paul supporters who are probably some of the most infuriating people on earth. Um, you know, uh, you really can't blame the, the, uh, Arab invasions of the Byzantine Empire on the United States, at least of all, or, you know, because we didn't exist then. So, um, th these people just have a profoundly ahistorical view, unfortunately. And, and 
And, you know, you really have to know a little bit about history to understand this. Yeah, a you, little bit. You do have to look at the history in total, but like as far as what's going on now, uh, and not to get too bogged down on this mm-hmm. subject, but I mean, take ISIS just as one example. I mean, mm-hmm. if 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 the United States had not gone in there and gotten rid of Saddam, do you think an ISIS still would have come up? Because because it was like this nature abhors a vacuum, right? right. I mean, you have. A vacuum happens, the power structure is gone, something, and usually, especially over there, usually worse comes up and takes its place. Well, I think that something like ISIS was almost inevitable because what you have with ISIS is a marriage of jihad and the idea of bringing back the caliphate. And, uh, you know, the, the idea of bringing back the caliphate has been around since the fall of the Ottoman one, you know, in 19, in the early 1920s, right after World War One. Sure. Um, it's increasingly become a rallying point uh, and a sort of convergence point between political Islamists um, and, and, and terrorists. Okay. Uh, and, and, and where, where, where ISIS was brilliant, actually more brilliant than, than, uh, than Al Qaeda, than bin Laden and Al Qaeda was in declaring a territorial state. Right. Uh, now, yes, the fact, the power vacuum that was created there by our invasion of Iraq and our destabilization of of the regime of Saddam, frankly, uh, allowed that to happen. But I think it would have happened somewhere else. I mean, ISIS's and Al-Qaeda's views are almost exactly the same. ISIS just went a little step further, like I said, and declared a territorial state. Uh, Bin Laden didn't want to do that. Al-Zawahiri did not want to do that. And it turned out that, you know, ISIS Baghdadi was actually smarter in doing this. But 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 I think this would have popped up anywhere. But uh, so there's a sense in which we exacerbated the situation by invading Iraq. I totally agree. An invasion yeah. of Iraq was pouring was fuel on the fire. Yeah, yeah it, was, it was quite stupid. Uh, you know, people will make fun of Trump for saying this sort of thing, but he's exactly right. You know, there wasn't a terrorism problem in Iraq with Saddam because Saddam crushed these guys. Yeah. Now, on the other hand, they had other problems. <laughs> you know, it wasn't really nice to be a Kurd or a Shia living under Saddam. Uh, to be, you know, to exactly. Be so, yep. so, you know, the 65% of the population that's Kurdish and the, you know, the, the, the 15% of the population or 10% that's, excuse me, the 65% of the population is Shia and the yep. 10, 15% that's Kurdish are much better off now. Um, uh, so, but, but, but again, it, 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 we allowed, we, we helped create a period of a power vacuum in which to ice, in which ISIS, into which ISIS stepped. But it's going to happen anyway because the, the the allure of the caliphate, the the myth of the golden age of the caliphate is so powerful among Muslims, both terrorist and non-terrorist, that I think it's inevitable that groups are going to try to bring it about by force. And so much so with the Shia that they, when they got power, they began to turn on to the uh, on the Sunnis, and that gave an impetus for ISIS as well. To come right. up because right. all of a sudden they said, "Hey, we're here. We can protect you guys." Right. And, ISIS, yep. yeah, ISIS is sort of a um, uh, a, 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 a supersized version of uh, you know the so-called tribal awakenings yeah. uh, that the under Bush that that Petraeus worked with and managed to stem the tide uh, of of the of the Islamist groups. But what happened was basically uh, the Sunnis, all of the Sunnis in Iraq, felt like they were getting screwed o- screwed over by the by the Shia government which there is a certain degree of truth to. Um, and they basically, many of them have joined up with ISIS just because they'd rather be there than be, than to be ruled by Shia. So, you know, I mean, but again, we made a, we may have uncorked 
that bottle and let the genie out. But that that genie's been around for you know thirteen hundred yeah. years in the Islamic world. We didn't create it. Yeah. I mean, and to be fair, as I tell people, Obama and I was some of my conservative friends get mad at me. I'm like, Obama didn't create ISIS. You know, and actually, frankly, never did. Neither did George Bush. You know who created ISIS? Frankly, Muhammad. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a good point there. I think for sure that the the idea of the caliphate that since the end, like you said, since the end of the Ottoman Empire, it's been this idea to reestablish it. Right. So let's get into Sufism. Uh, mm-hmm. I know this is something that you're particularly interested in, and it has some elements that I think. Uh, go into some certain aspects we talk about on the show, and I do want to get to those later, but I want to talk about what Sufism is and mm-hmm. how it kind of differs from mainstream Islam uh-huh. and some of the practices. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I wouldn't put it that way. What I would say is, okay, okay. Sufism is sometimes posited as being sort of a third branch of Islam. The, the largest branch, of course, being Sunnism, Sunnism, uh, which is like 85%, and the Shia making up about 15%, various kinds of Shia. And just so people know real quick, and I won't go back and recapitulate what we did before, but just real quickly, the difference between Sunni and Shia is an argument about who should be in charge of the Islamic community, both politically and religiously. Uh, and the Shia said that it had to be somebody descended from Muhammad. Um, and they lost out early on in Islamic history. Uh, uh, and uh, the Sunni who said basically any pious male Muslim can be caliph won out. Okay? So, that's, so it was a political fight that, that, that ten, then turned into a theological one over time. Now, the Sufis don't really have a bone to pick in that argument. The Sufis, you can be either Sunni or Shia and be a Sufi. A Sufi is an Islamic mystic, all right? The Suf, the baseline, and the word Suf, we're not exactly sure of the provenance of the word, but it probably comes from something that these early mystics wore, a, a wool cap. Um, the, the Suf, a wool cap. And uh, so that's probably where it comes from. Um, they're mystics. The Sufis basically, to make a complex thing as simple as I can, as I can believe that uh, following the uh, you know following the pillars of Islam, following Sharia law, whether Sunni or Shia, um, you know, uh, reading the Quran and going to mosque on Friday, doing all that stuff, is necessary but not sufficient to be a good Muslim. The Sufis, and, and, and you see the similar a similar sort of mystical movement in just about every world religion, uh, believe that one needed to have a personal experience of Allah. It's sort of like the mystics in the Catholic Church, or if you know anything about the Orthodox Church. uh, Many in the Christian Orthodox Church practice something called the Jesus Prayer, which is sort of a repetitive prayer that you're supposed to do while you're doing sort of meditative Christian prayer. And the idea is that ultimately you will have sort of a, um, you have sort of a mystical feeling connection uh, to God. So Sufism is very similar to that um, in the Islamic world. And basically it was a movement that developed and said, you know, you have to keep the Islamic law, but there's something more than that. And, and, and then they came up with these practices where you would, whereby you would try to achieve um, what they called fana'a or union with Allah. Uh, they would, and, and some of it was probably, you know, just copied from what Christians did. Some of it may have been taken from Buddhists uh, after Muslims, some of the Muslims had conquered part of India. Um, the idea would be like, for instance, you would stay up all night and pray. 
Uh, in fact, there's even a myth. I don't know if sure it's a myth. It actually may be true. There's even a legend that that, that coffee was invented by Muslims um, in Ethiopia or in somewhere in East Africa uh, when they uh, or Yemen when they saw uh, there was a Sufi mystic who was trying to stay up all night and pray, and he kept falling asleep. Uh, and he he noticed that the goats outside the Sufi uh, convent, Khanka, the Sufi sort of monastery, uh, would eat these these uh, these berries off this bush, and then they could pop, pop around all night. So, <laughs> so he pulled the, them off, and Starbucks was born. Um, <laughs> not sure that's true, but there's a very old myth about that. We do know that coffee shops were 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 were, were, were much earlier in the Middle East than they were in, in the European world. Oh, but anyway, really? so so one of the things was to stay up all night and pray. Um, one of them was to do sort of repetitive prayer, like I said, like Eastern Orthodox Christians do. Sort of a mantra, almost, if you will, uh, of course, but in an Islamic context. Um, and um, uh, later on, some of the Sufis, as we get up into the Middle Ages and the early modern period, uh, there are certain Sufis that sort of, I guess you could say, sort of thought that that took too long. And so they would start doing things like they, they would try different kinds of drugs um, and even drink Um uh, why, which of course is, is forbidden in Islam. So that's what it was. And, and there, and what happened is Sufism first pops up in probably the 800s. So 100, 150 years into Islamic history. And, um, it's looked at very askance by particularly mainstream Sunni, the mainstream Sunni world, because, you know, again, you know, Islam is very strictly monotheistic. Uh, you know, in Islam, the, even the Christian Trinity is condemned as heresy because it supposedly uh, uh, mars the unity of God. Um, and the Sufis were particularly suspect because, again, this whole idea, like I mentioned, of fana, which is which is union with Allah. How could you dare think that a mortal uh, human being could could, in any sense, even for an instant, merge with Allah? So they were considered heretics early on. Uh, many of them were persecuted. Put uh, the death and various and sundry things, <clears throat> but the but the, but the movement survived because uh, you know I, every religion has this sort of movement. People that aren't satisfied with just following the law and, and doing the sort of what they see as mundane things, they want more of a a, a mystical direct experience of, of the divine. So so by the time you get to about the early Middle Ages of 1,000, 1,100, 1,200, Sufism is firmly established, and what happens is. It differentiates into dozens, probably hundreds, actually, of what are in Arabic called tariqat uh, orders. And, and people often try to sort of a- analogize the, the Sufi mystical orders to sort of the orders in the Catholic Church. I mean, you know, you have Dominicans and Franciscans and Jesuits. and Yeah, that's, that's what Jesuits. immediately popped into my mind right. when you said that. It, uh, so it's sort of like that, uh, except that I think that one could argue, and, and many of the Catholic orders, at least I should say, Many, a lot of Catholic orders were mystical orders, you know, prayer and union, some sort of union with, with God was, was one of the things they were after. Um, but I think, you know, there are a couple of differences. Uh, the Sufi orders, for instance, um, I think differentiated more along pra- lines of practice rather than theology. I think that's one thing. Um, and another is that, that, well, I guess maybe that's not a difference, but it's a similarity, actually. Uh, the Sufi orders, uh, as they differentiated, uh, I mean, they sort of ran the gamut. Some some were very mystical, and all they would do is sit around and pray, and some would 
read the Quran a whole lot and they weren't that, you know, and try to just keep every jot and tittle of what the Quran said and the law said and live their life exactly like the Hadiths said Muhammad did. Um, and, and they weren't very mystical at all. And then you get a whole range in between. Uh, as they differentiate across North Africa, the Middle East, South Asia, Southeast Asia, excuse me, um, some of them are basically made like state religious institutions by various empires. And the Ottomans, for instance, there were a couple of Sufi orders, the Bektashis in particular, who were um, favored. And basically, for instance, the Bektashis were given money by the Ottoman government. Uh, they provided basically chaplains for the Ottoman military, things like that. There were other Sufi orders, however, that were uh, at times prohibited. Uh, and in fact, I, I'm actually I'm actually working on a book. I'm trying to get it done here for the end of the year. It's going to just be a short book, probably 50 or 60 pages. <clears throat> and it's how prior Islamic states dealt with movements like ISIS. And I'm particularly dealing with the Ottomans because the Ottomans faced groups like ISIS a number of times. Um, right, the, and, the one that the that ISIS would probably come from, which would be Wahhabism, would right. be one of those, right? right. Well, the Wah exactly, the Wahhabis directly. Um, yeah. There were other movements in the Ottoman Empire, um, and some of them that were opposed to the Ottoman state uh, were Sufi orders uh, that said that, well, you know, the sultan isn't ruling as a good Muslim. <clears throat> some of these Sufi orders, uh, the, the founders, or maybe not the founder, and by the way, Sufi orders are usually named after the founder. Um, so, uh, uh, you know, the Bektashis, let's see, the, the, the Naqshbendis. I'm trying to think of some of the famous ones today. Um, there's still a number, uh, still there's a large percentage of Muslims that say they are members of Sufi orders in the modern world. It's probably not what it was in 1200 or 1500 or 1800 AD. But my, my, my research indicates that somewhere around like 9 to 10% of the world's Muslims say that they are affiliated with the Sufi order. Uh, so, you know, 9 to 10% of 1.5 billion is a fair number of people. But anyway, but some of these were, were like officially enfranchised by governments, the Ottomans or, 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 or other Islamic states various times. But sometimes Sufis could be a real problem because one misperception that is held about Sufis today is that they were always peaceful. And part of this is sort of people projecting back into the past what the status is today. In the modern world, most, not all, but most Sufis are peaceful. There are exceptions to this, the Naqshbandis. There are indications there that there is a significant participation in ISIS of the Naqshbandiya Sufi order. You may have heard of this group. The, it's called JRTN by the, by the terrorist uh, analyst. Jaysh uh, al-Rajal al-Tariqa al-Naqshbandiya. The army of the men of the Naqshbandi Sufi order. Hmm. Uh, and they have been, there, there's some documented cases of these guys fighting with ISIS. Uh, and this historically does, makes a whole lot of sense. It does make a whole lot of sense because the Naqshbandis were one of the Sufi groups that believed in waging jihad. So that brings me back to what I was just saying a moment ago. Sufis are not, uh, you know, they're not like Indian gurus with beards floating around on a carpet and, you know, with their <laughs> legs crossed praying all the time. A lot of them did do that. Not sure about the floating carpet, but um, not all of them did. Uh, and, and, and historically, uh, many of the groups that were opposed to and thus opposed by, for instance, the Ottoman Empire, the Ottoman state, the Sultan, were Sufi groups that thought that they knew better how to be good Muslims. And uh, they were often uh, they were often uh, 
not just prohibited, but, 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 but there were attempts by the Ottomans, for instance, to wipe some of them out because they were a political threat. And one of the big reasons, one of the big ways you could be a political threat if you're a Sufi and, and because you would engage in jihad is you would either your founder or one of the leaders, usually called a sheikh, you know, sheikh, S-H-A-Y-K-H. It's usually spelled in English S-H-E-I-K-H, but in but the proper transliteration is S-H-A-Y-K-H. Gotcha. Sheikh, who's the head of an order, would decide that he was the Mahdi. You know, remember we talked about the Mahdi, the Islamic Messiah figure. Right. Um, that both the Sunni and the Shia believe in, but it's much more easy to claim to be sort of a freelance Mahdi if you're Sunni, uh, because it's much more, much more institutionalized for the 12 or Shia, uh, and, and other reasons. But anyway, so, so there are a number of Sufi leaders who proclaim themselves the Mahdi, uh, and thus, and then waged war against the Ottoman state, which usually ended in your body at room temperature and your head disconnected from your body, uh, because, <laughs> The Ottomans didn't put up with that crap very well. Um, so, so like for instance, you know the famous movie Khartoum with Charlton Heston, right? And yes. uh, Olivier, uh, fifty-nine, right? Sixty-two. I always forget. Tried really hard to beat Lawrence of Arabia and it failed, but it's still a fun movie, told totally from the British point of view. Of course, Charlton Heston plays General Charles Gordon, who had been hired by the Ottomans to go down to Sudan and deal with this guy named Muhammad Ahmed, who proclaimed himself the Mahdi, uh, who, of course, that was that was all defeated. Muhammad Ahmed's people won and took over Sudan and ruled until 1898 when Kitchener went back with Maxim guns and then took care of that. But but um, uh, Muhammad Ahmed was the member was a member of two different Sufi orders and was an Islamic mystic uh, who also happened to believe in jihad. Uh, there was a very famous movement in Libya. Actually, before Libya was created, when it was still uh, Cyrenaica and Tripolitania, uh, back in the 19th century, uh, a, an order called the Sanusia order, Sufi order, uh, was created uh, and waged jihad mainly against the Italians when the Italians came in, you know, in the early 20th century and, and occupied Libya. Wasn't the king of Libya? Yes. Wasn't he yes. a member of the Sanusi order? Yes, he was. He was the head yeah. of the Sufi order. King Idris, Idris al-Sanusi, he was the head of the Sufi order. When they created Libya in the 1950s, they made the head of the Sufi order king of the country. Um, so um, anyway, the point of all that is that, again, there are, by conservative estimates, probably, you know, at least 50, maybe 100 million or more people in the Islamic world still claim to be Sufis. You can be Sunni or Shia. There are still some... There are still some Shia Sufis, but particularly in Iran, they are persecuted. And this is a very sort of strange phenomenon, which I don't have really time to go into, but suffice it to say, the reason seems to be that Twelver Shiism, which is the predominant form of Shiism, of course, in Iran and Iraq, uh, is very sort of mystical on its own, in its own right, much more than Sunnism. And the mysticism of Twelver Shiism does not really tolerate well other sorts of mysticism, which Sufism is sort of seen as a rival mysticism. And uh, even before the Islamic Republic came along in 79, if you go back under the Shah in previous years in, 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 in uh, Iran, uh, the Twelver Shia establishment never really liked Sufis. And uh, most of them have been sort of run out of the country. There were a few still Shia Sufi orders. But one reason they don't like them under the Islamic Republic in particular 
is that they can't, they feel like they can't control them. And so therefore they're not going to tolerate a brand of Islam that they can't really control. So, so anyway, the world, the situation today is there are dozens, at least probably more like hundreds of Sufi orders around the world. Um, and some of them are quite influential. Um, many of them are active in the West and particularly in the West, there's a group called the Haqqani order, um, which is an offshoot of the Naqshbandi, which is mainly a Turkish order. It's, it's, um, it's generally peaceful. Uh, the, uh, the Gulanis. No, we're going to get to the Gulanis, right? Um, no, the Haqqanis are generally peaceful and don't really believe in jihad. Um, and they are one of the groups that's made a lot of inroads into the West, into the Europe and the United States. Um, and what happens is that a lot of people, because, because this group and some similar ones, as I said, in the West are fairly peaceful, People sort of assume that all Sufis are like that. You know, again, I was sort of tongue in cheek earlier, but they sort of said, well, all Sufis are peaceful guys with ZZ top beards, uh, <laughs> who, you know, who just kind of hang out and, and try to, you know, right. and, smoke hashish all day, right? Yeah. And they just kind of want to like, you know, rap with Allah and man, that's really cool. And uh, yeah, that's some Sufis, but that's not all Sufis because there are Sufis at AK, AK 47s and they know how to lock and load and they're not afraid to use it. Um, and, and some of them, good for them, because, I mean, you know, one of the reasons that al-Shabaab in Somalia has been sort of brought to some extent uh, to bay is because the Sufi groups, in, and there's something like six or seven different Sufi groups in Somalia. Sufism is really big in East Africa. A few years ago said, you know, we're not going to put up with these guys because al-Shabaab, just like, um, just like uh, al-Qaeda, particularly uh, ISIS, you know, our strict Salafi Wahhabi Sunnis, as you observed earlier, uh, and they hate Sufis because the Sufis do all this heretical stuff. You know, besides, like I said, they can they have the temerity to believe they can right. directly experience Allah. You know, they they revere their sheikhs. Um, they treat the uh, the tombs of their sheikhs, their deceased sheikhs, as sort of uh, places of pilgrimage. And one of the things that you've, you've probably seen this on the news uh, in Libya. Uh, in, in, in Syria and Iraq where ISIS is, they, they go around and blow up and destroy not just Christian sites, but they go around and blow up and destroy Sufi shrines. Yeah, that's the point. That's what I was going to, the point yeah. I was going to make about when in 2014, when ISIS took over their area yeah. of Iraq, they went uh, just as much, uh, against what they saw as heretical well, Muslims right. as they did against Christians. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. Maybe even, probably even more so. Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, the Christians can be fit into the paradigm of Vimy, second-class citizens, but there's no place for a heretical Muslim except, right. you know, a, a ditch somewhere. Right. Um, but, yeah, yeah, and Dabak had these lovely, you know, full-color mag- pictures of them blowing up, um, you know, Sufi shrines and all this stuff, besides, of course, you know, turning churches into mosques and so on. But so, so anyway, but, but, but the, the Sufi groups in, in, uh, Somalia banded together in something called the, uh, Ahl al, uh, what's it called? Uh, I forgot. It was a pan Sufi group. It was an acronym in Arabic. I can't remember what it was now. Uh, Ahl al-Sunnah wal-Jamaa, the family of the Sunnah and the community or something. But it was a Sufi group, uh, made up of several different Sufi orders and they took up arms against Shabab, al-Shabab, you know? Um, so, so again, there's a wide range of belief in Su- Sufism. Uh, you can be Su- you can be Sunni or Shia and be Sufi. Although odds odds are you're probably going to be Sunni, but it's sort of in a sense almost like you know sort of like um, 
charismatic Christianity. It's it's kind of like that. Don't push the analogy too far, but you know, you can be. It used to be you had to be like Baptist or something to be sure. charismatic, right? And by, if anyone doesn't know what that is, you know, people that believe you can do things like speak in tongues, like they did in the early church. Uh, you get the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you have various and sundry experiences. Um, snake, hand, now, snake handling, stuff like that. Yeah. Snake hand. Well, that's a little different, but is yeah, it? okay. Th- th- that's not charismatic. That's just stupid. Um, <laughs> I told you guys, didn't I, I remember I said this in May. And actually, when I was in high school, I had a friend, and I'm from Kentucky, and they're you know they have these churches in in uh, Kentucky, Tennessee, and a couple other places where. Uh, they take that passage, the passages, and I think it's in Matthew and Luke where Jesus tells the apostles, you'll be able to handle poisonous snakes. Right. And those guys take it literally. So they bring, you know, water moccasins into the church service. And uh, if you get bit and you die, that just proves you didn't have enough faith. Well, I had a friend in high school whose dad was a snake handler minister and he died. You know, because if you get bit mowing the yard, you can go to the doctor. But if you get bit in the church service, you're not allowed to go because that proves you don't have any faith. Um so, but interestingly enough, since you bring that up, there are actually snake handler Sufi orders. There's one called the Rafai, which is really snake handler Sufi orders. Yeah. I've never seen them. I've read about them. I'd love to go see them, although I have to keep my distance. But, but, but the analogy sort of works because like you can have charismatic Christians, you can have charismatic Baptists, you can have charismatic Catholics. I don't think they allow charismatic Orthodox. I think they'd like to do an exorcism on you or something, but, Probably. um, but, um, I'll have to ask my Orthodox friend. I don't know about that, but I do know Protestant and Catholics both have you know, charismatic churches. Uh, you can have Sufis and you can just go to the mosque on Friday and there could be Sufis there, you know, uh, because again, it's, it's not particularly, it's not really another sect of Islam. It's sort of a movement mainly within Sunnism of how, of how you, how you worship sort of. Well, let me ask you about the some of the figures, the main figures with the de- associated with kind of like the development of Sufism. And one of the mm-hmm. names that I saw that mm-hmm. came up when I was doing a little bit of research on this was Al Ghazali. Oh and, yeah, and it, who's who was he, and or, or what, what <laughs> others would you would you uh, know about that would that are very in- instrumental in developing this? Oh my God, there's almost one for every order. Yeah, uh, but Al Ghazali. Okay, he died. I can always remember this. This is because he died in a very convenient year, Western calendar. He died in 1111, so you can always remember the year the guy died. Um, I don't know what year that is after Hijra. I'd have to look it up. But Al-Ghazali is famous for sort of making Sufism acceptable. Uh, he was a very prominent scholar. He, In some ways, he's kind of like St. Augustine, if you will, in some ways. Very brilliant guy. And the interesting thing about him is he started out as a Sunni. I mean, he stayed a Sunni, but he started out as a Sunni. He tried. He was an expert. He was a professor of theology. Excuse me. I believe it was under the Seljuk Empire, if I recall correctly, uh, which was the first Turkish Empire before the before the Ottomans. And he um, he went through a bunch of severe psychological issues. There's supposedly some story that he was lecturing one day and suddenly he couldn't speak anymore. Um and he went off on this sort of like personal journey to find out which brand of Islam was the real Islam. And he tried, he tried, uh, Ismaili Shiism, uh, which is the second largest branch of the Shia behind the Twelvers. Uh, he tried a couple of others and then he went off and tried Sufism. And then the story is he came back and then he wrote, you know, he wrote a couple of books and basically said, Sufism is the true expression of Islam. And, you know, this would be sort of like, I don't know. 
it would be like, it would be like, not quite like this, but it's sort of like if you had like a pope that went off and became a charismatic Christian and then wrote a papal encyclical and said, uh, you know, this whole direct experience of the Holy Spirit and this whole, um, this whole speaking in tongues thing, this actually works, you know? I mean, it's not quite that high because you don't have a pope in Islam and Al-Ghazali wasn't that high, but it was a pretty big deal. Um, I don't know. Let's put it like this. It would be like if C.S. Lewis suddenly decided to become a snake handler. Uh, gotcha. Died. But, but that's probably a better analogy. So Al-Ghazali basically wrote several books, one called The Incoherence of the Incoherence and several other ones. Uh, and I read them in graduate school, but it's been a long time. Um, and basically what he did was before him, Sufism was, as I said earlier, uh, very, uh, you know, it, it had stopped sort of being persecuted, but it was very, it was looked askance at. It was not really accepted. They were considered a bunch of weirdos, uh, sort of on the margins of society. And then after him, and again, he's 12th century, late 11th, early 12th century. Um, uh, it's, 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 it's not just fashionable, but it's acceptable to be a Sufi. And so we had a great deal of making it, making it sort of mainstream, I guess you could say. What would be some other people that would be that you would see as important to the further development of it? Well, the, 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 the what's supposed to be the sort of eponymous founder of uh, of Sufism was a guy, a guy named Jafar al Sadiq. Uh, I think he was ninth century. I'm trying to remember, um, and and he was one of the first ones to bring it up. Uh, the early enough you read about this guy who actually <laughs> met a bad ending was a guy named Al Halaj. If you read about him. Al-Halaj was under the Abbasids. This was in the 8th or 9th century AD. Uh, and Al-Halaj uh, was one of these guys who said that uh, he was one of the first Sufis and he would write books uh, about this direct experience of God. And like later writers like Rumi, I don't know if you ever read about Rumi, um, uh, who was 13th century. Uh, Al-Halaj was writing about how... Uh, uh, Things like um, direct experience of Allah, and he would use like love language, you know, like like the beloved, you know, my beloved and stuff. And of course, you're not supposed to talk that way in strict Sunnism about Allah. Hmm. <laughs> so he was actually put to death by one of the Abbasid caliphs. And the story is that he was actually crucified. Um, so uh, no story that he came back afterwards, but that that's what happened to him. The Rumi was very, very, very important. Rumi was. Um, uh, actually, Persian, but the Turks claim him because he died in died in what later became the Ottoman Empire, and his tomb is there. Um, uh, Rumi was 13th century, and he again was one of these guys that wrote a whole lot of. Uh, he wrote a lot of poetry, actually. Um, some of these guys, some of these Sufi guys, because they're very, some of them are very scholarly and very smart. You know, very you know. Uh, INTJ like Gal Ghazali, but other guys like Rumi are sort of guys that, you know, I mean, you just kind of picture them like hippies. Okay. Um, like you said earlier, you know, I don't think they smoked hash, but you know, I mean, some of their views you think they might as well have. Um, it was very emotional. You know, I, I, they claimed to have achieved some sort of unity with God or Allah. And then they wrote about it in, you know, in, in like, again, almost like, it's almost like, um, love literature, you know? And again, this stuff really turned off the mainstream Sunnis. And it, but a lot of people, it was very appealing to. Yeah. I'll bring that up, which what I probably should mention is 
the first real, not the first, but where the acrimony between Sufis and, and, uh, strict sort of constructionists, if you will, of the Quran and the Hadiths and, and Islamic law really pops up is with this guy called Ibn Taymiyyah. You've probably heard of Ibn Taymiyyah. Uh, Ibn Taymiyyah was, uh, was, uh, 14th century. Uh, and he, he is the person that did a lot of writing that said that, you know, the Sufis are, um, are, uh, practicing what's called shirk. S-H-I-R-K in Arabic. Shirk. Shirk means to associate anything with God. You know, Christians are often accused of shirk by strict Muslims because, again, the Trinity. Sufis were accused of shirk with Ibn Taymiyyah, uh, and then down to this day, because they, again, claim they have some sort of direct uh, relationship with, with Allah. Now, Ibn Taymiyyah's ideas were around, um, and they were brought back very forcefully. Like, sort of went into abeyance for a while, but they were brought back very forcefully by uh, uh, Ibn Abdul Wahhab in the um, late 17th, early 18th century. Okay. With the the original Wahhabi movement in, in in what was then just Arabia, later become Saudi Arabia, uh, and he basically updated Ibn Taymiyyah's ideas, and this is why the Wahhabis, the so-called Salafis, to this day, Salaf means uh, followers of um, people that believe that the Muslims should live like the Salaf, the pious ancestors at the time of Muhammad. The Salafis, which, you know, in graduate school, when I was in graduate school, we actually, we just called these people Islamic fundamentalists. I think it's actually a good term for them. Right. Um, uh, the Salafis and the Wahhabis uh, down to this day have this bitter acrimony for the most part towards Sufis. Uh, and it goes back mainly, again, to Ibn Taymiyyah as refracted through uh, Ibn Abdul Wahhab. So. I was wondering what the influence was uh, of of Sufism on the Wahhabists and the Salafi. I think you, you answered the question there, but it seems like a very strange relationship that they have. Like on one hand, you have them persecuting these different Sufi groups, but they have a group that that will that now fights with them, and then you have a direct influence from a right. Sufi order onto Wahhabism, which right. by definition should reject everything that the Sufi stands for. So it seems like there's very complex relationship. It's very complex. And, you know, humans are, humans are good at practicing this thing called cognitive dissonance, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. You would think that uh, ISIS wouldn't like the Naqshbandis at all, but they probably don't. But, you know, sometimes the things they agree on override the things they don't agree on and fighting jihad against the infidels (laughs) <laughs> or the heretic and or the heretics sort of trumps that. So um, again, yeah, it's very interesting. Um, like I said, many of the Sufi groups in the modern world, many if not most of them, probably are quite peaceful. But pacifism has never been one of their. Um, you can be peaceful without being pacifist, okay? And and uh, a lot of the Islamic groups, excuse me, a lot of the Sufi groups today are peaceful. But again, some of them are. Some of them believe in, in waging jihad, and but for the most part, most of them, I think it's safe to say, are opposed to the Wahhabi Salafi viewpoint. And one of the things I write about, I'm trying to work this into this new little book I'm I'm, I'm doing, is that um, the, the the argument is not just over that. The argument is over, for instance, how do you read the Quran? Uh, <clears throat> Salafis and Wahhabis 
Islamic fundamentalists believe that the Quran should be read basically just based on what they call the Zahari meaning. Zahari in Arabic means the surface meaning, the apparent meaning. Okay? Right. So it means a literal, a literal reading. Right. And again, this is why, again, this is the main reason. It's not the only reason. But in my viewpoint, based on my years of looking at this, this is the main reason that most of the terrorist groups are strict Sunni. Because they, they believe that the Quran should just be read literally and Muhammad should be followed in every jot and tittle or everything he ever did. And therefore, they believe that, again, when it says behead the unbeliever and, 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 and attack and besiege and bring the unbelievers to heal until they, they convert or they die, that they're, they should do that. that. That should apply today. It doesn't just apply in Muhammad's time and it's not just rhetorical. It's literal. <clears throat> but many Sufis, again, going back for centuries, believe that there's another meaning to the Quran, what they call the botany meaning. Botany in Arabic is the word for like inside, interior. So there's a zahri meaning, which is what the words say, but there's a botany meaning, which is like, you know what? It's deeper than that. Okay. Now, I think this is great, and I hope this really catches on. Um, so far, it remains sort of a minority view among the Sufis and some of the sects, like uh, I mentioned the Ismaili Shia a minute ago. And for that matter, even the Twelver Shia. I mean, for all the problems that the Ayatollahs are giving us, uh, I think there is much more hope for some sort of like reform in Islam from Shia Islam than from the Sunni. Because sure. in Shia Islam, for many years, for centuries, much like in Sufism, uh, they have allowed what's called ta'wil, not just tajdeed. That is, you can, you can, in a limited sense at least, you can sort of interpret the Quran. Uh, it's not as much as the uh, as the Sufis, as I said, with this with this interior meaning versus the surface meaning, but it's there. Whereas in mainstream Sunnism, which again is the majority brand of all Muslims, you just have to read the Quran and take the surface meaning, and that's what it is. Which again, as an aside, quickly is one of the reasons it's so hard to delegitimize for Muslims themselves to delegitimize groups like ISIS and Al Qaeda and so on, because. These guys say, look, we're just reading it and doing what it says. Yeah. <laughs> you are you are the ones that aren't doing it. So it's really hard to refute that. This seems the exact opposite of what we would of what would you you would have in Christianity, where I would say that the majority look at the scripture and say that there is symbolism, that it's figurative, and there is a vocal minority that says that it is um, that it is you should treat everything yeah. literal. So it seems You're like exact- this is an exact mirror image of uh, exactly Islam right. to Christianity. Um, yeah, you're exactly right. I, I've made that argument in articles before, and if you came up with that without reading my stuff, man, you know what you're talking about. Uh, yeah, that's exactly right. Um, you know, there are 2.2 billion Christians in the world, largest religion. Um, the largest single branch of Christianity is the Roman Catholic Church, which right. has about 1.1 billion people. And the Roman Catholic Church, even going back to the Middle Ages, has not been a biblical literalist church. You know, I know this gives some of my Protestant friends, you know, the heebie-jeebies, but, you know, that's what it is. Uh, the Catholic Church has long said that there is, of course, the surface apparent meaning of the scripture, but there are allegorical and metaphorical and symbolic and tropological and fill in the blank. There are lots of different ways. And if I may adduce what I said earlier, you know, this whole thing about snake handling. I mean, you know, not just the Catholics. But most, most, most Protestants and the Orthodox Church, which people forget about, the, the other branch of Christianity, say that 
you know, where Jesus told the, the, the disciples to pick up poisonous snakes, Jesus, that only applies to the people that were standing there that Jesus was looking in the eye that day. It doesn't apply to us 2,000 years later. Yeah. yeah. Some things Jesus said apply to us, but that one doesn't. Okay. So, you know, so, so, so that's the majority view. I mean, the, the snake handlers that take that 100% literally are the minority. Right. Now, there are lots of Christians that do take the Bible 100% literally, at least try to. They are the so-called conservative fundamentalist Protestants. And if you look at across the, the world, the ones that the use taxpayer money to be, to build life size replicas of Noah's Ark. <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> but you know, to be fair, to be fair, I, I always find it interesting. I was talking to my sons about this the other day. My sons are well, one's in high school now, one's in middle school. I was saying, you know, it always cracks me up because liberals will have cows about conservative Christians, or uh, yes, about conservative Christians wanting to say use the government to impose norms. Uh, uh, you know, social norms having to do with, say, homosexuality or with abortion. Okay. But, but liberals are fine with imposing Christian norms on like taking money away from some people and giving it to others. So I've never quite understood how, yeah. what is, you know, depends on whose yeah. ox is being gored, you know? Well, I mean, uh, you, you got, you got, you got a point there. And plus, like, you know, social justice warriors would just love to take yeah, everybody's ride, rights away. Right. So, you know, you know well, yeah, th- there's we, that we, kind we, of fascism on both sides. Take all that you aisle. have and give it to the poor. And yeah. the, Jesus didn't say to the Romans, take every, everything everybody has and give it to the poor. It was more of a sort of voluntary thing. But anyway, um, but. If you add up all the Christians in the world that take the try, say they take the Bible 100% literally and you know solo scriptura, you probably come up with I, I ran these figures a while back about 400 million, which is a large number, and you know but but you know Mother Jones and the New York Times thinks that that's everybody that's Christian always cracks me up as a Lutheran yeah. uh, who who has sort of orthodox leanings and reads the Orthodox Christian Study Bible. It always cracks me up if you read these some of these media outlets, you'd think that that every Christian in the world is a Southern Baptist. Like, no, right. actually, my Southern Baptist friends think that too. But, right. um, but, but, but the um, thing is that they're the most. They, but I can see where that comes from somewhat because, <laughs> like I said, they're the vocal minority. Those are, are the guys are. that you hear, and also the guys that the media um, focuses on. Love what to hate. Th- one thing I want to ask you, uh-huh. and uh, this is something that has come up a lot on the show. But, uh, let me let me let me finish this off. Sure, quick. absolutely. But, but you were exactly right, and I was trying to back up what you said with a bit of bit more data. That yes, in Christianity, the majority of Christians actually do not have a hundred percent literalist view of the Bible. They believe in tradition, they believe in interpretation, and and uh, in allegory and so on right. and so forth. So, so as, as you correctly pointed out, it's a major- minority, although still a lot of people that that have the fundamentalist sort of. Literalist view. In Islam, it's the other way around because in, in, in 85% of, of, of Muslims are Sunni. And in Sunni Islam, the only acceptable re- way to read the Quran and the Hadiths, the alleged sayings of Muhammad, are to take them 100% literally and apply them today just like they applied in, you know, 620 AD. So that's that you, you're exactly right. You identified, you, you identified that directly. Absolutely. Uh, one of the things that we talk about a lot, um, we've talked to people that are involved in this, and that would be Freemasonry, the Western esoteric tradition. Um, I, are there any influences on Sufism, specifically from Gnosticism and Kabbalah? You know, I, I'm not sure about Kabbalah. Are you mean on or you mean of? Which way do you mean? Well, I mean, would it have been an influence on Sufism? 
And oh, okay. I think Kabbalah okay. really kind of develops around the, maybe develops around the same yeah. time as Sufism. Yeah. So yeah. more, uh, yeah, Kabbalah so more, is basically Jew- Jewish mysticism. So more Gnosticism, yeah. which was, you know, the movement from the, the Roman Empire, early, early Christianity. Early yeah. 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 And I think, and there's arguments too that, um, again, Islam was influenced by Buddhism. Uh, Sufism was influenced by Buddhism. Uh, people made arguments for Zoroastrianism, which of course was the Persian official religion before Islam came along. I think that if you look at where Islam is, and of course not falling into the post hoc ergo propter hoc fallacy, of course, which is just because B follows A, A caused B, um, that that I think it's very likely that, that that Sufism was probably influenced the most by by early by, by Christianity. Uh, one of the things that's sort of telltale for me in this is that, that, that the view of Jesus among the Sufi orders. Um, in fact, uh, one of the reasons that many of the Sufi orders got into hot water with the Sunni authorities was they were accused of putting Jesus on a higher level than Muhammad. So, um, so there's m- not all, but many of the Sufi orders have a very, very high opinion of Jesus. Now, it's not the same as Christians. I mean, they don't believe in the resurrection or anything. Right. But they, they will foreground Jesus sometimes and say he's as important, if not more important, than, than Muhammad. And again, this is when, when the founder of your religion is Muhammad, and one of the major points of the religion is the Christians screwed things up. It's not, it's, that's sort of a tightrope you got to walk. But I think probably... You know, Gnosticism to a certain extent, um, there was Christian mysticism that was not Gnostic, as I mentioned. Uh, again, a lot of it in the Orthodox, in Orthodox Christianity, uh, Eastern Christianity. Um, so I think it's very likely that there was some of that influence. Uh, and again, there also may have been some Buddhist influence. There, there, there was a fair amount of Buddhism, although it was quite minority, but there's a fair amount of Buddhism in in the eastern parts of the Persian Empire when the Muslims conquered it. And then again, as I mentioned, you know, by a thousand or so AD, uh, the, the Muslims con- conquer at least northern India. Um, so, <clears throat> you know, all religions are influenced by other religions they come into contact with. About the Kamala, I'm not really sure, I have to say, but I think in terms of, I think it's pretty clear that Christianity and possibly to some extent a little bit Buddhism influenced uh, uh, Sufi views. What about Freemasonry? In the Islamic world, uh, Freemasonry is just basically considered a Western conspiracy to, you know, take over the Muslim world. Is kind of the way it's seen. Would there be a link between, let's say, I mean, you, you had this whole idea about Freemasonry being kind of a, an offshoot of the Knights Templar, right? And you have an a lot of people speculate that there was an influence on the Knights Templar by the assassins. Which right. would they would they be? Yeah, would they have been considered a, a a Sufi order? No, no, the Ismailis are a Shia order. Okay, right, me, they're a branch of Shiism. Okay, no, 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 they're not Sufi at all. They're they're the second largest branch of the Shia. They're called they're also called Seven or Shia. Now they are very metaphysical, and in fact, sometimes very sort of mystical in their own right. But it's a different kind of mysticism than the Sufis have. Yeah. In fact, basically what you said here, I think it's probably the other way, unless I misunderstand what you were, misunderstood what you were saying. I think it's very likely that the Templars and the Crusaders, and the Templars were a Crusader order, that the some of the Crusaders were influenced by the Ismailis and possibly by Sufi Islam 
And then that then made its way into Freemasonry, not the other way around. Right. Yeah. That's where I'm going with that. Yeah. 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 yeah I think, yeah. oh, yeah. Yeah. Cause I thought you said it was the other way. So I, I misunderstood. No, no. I think, I think there's probably a good argument that can be made for that. I'm just wondering if there's any links between, um, in the, in with Western Freemasonry or Western occultism and this Eastern, uh, mysticism, Sufism. You know, I, what I know of it, it's more likely that it's an Ismaili influence. That is a certain brand of Shiaism that influences the Templars and then thus Freemasonry than it is the Sufis. Okay. Although again, they they look very similar, and especially after right. Al Ghazali, right. if if any of the Templars, any of the Crusaders read Al Ghazali, he he sort of. The ideas are very similar. Again, you know, like I said, he went through these phases. He actually, for a while, went and tried to live and studied with the Ismailis, and then he wound up with the Sufis. And but there's a lot of cross pollination with those groups. Yeah, a lot of cross pollination. Because again, remember I mentioned early on that that one of the reasons that the Shia, the twelve or Shia, have such a hard time with uh, the Sufis is because, frankly, they're so similar in many ways. And so I think the same is also true, probably even more true with the Ismailis. Now, this Ismailis don't have a state anymore. There is no seven or Shia state in the world. Yeah. And that's a weird group. I mean, a very interesting. Someone needs to write about them because they started out, as you observed, very violent. They, the original assassins were Ismaili Shia. Um, and uh, over the centuries, partly because at one point they were actually crushed by the Mongols. Uh, but, but the, but the, although their, their, their fortresses were destroyed, um, they survived and the religion became very peaceful. I mean, to the extent where they don't define jihad the same way Muslim, other Muslims do anymore. They define jihad not as fighting against anybody or trying to make other people Muslim or killing them if they don't become Muslim. They define jihad as things like uh, today, like building schools and all the stuff that the media tells you jihad really is supposed to mean, but for a lot of people it doesn't. Uh, it actually does for the Ismailis. Uh, building schools. They, they are big on building desalination plants in places like Tanzania. Uh, and by the way, I don't, you may know this, some of your listeners may not, the worldwide head of the Ismaili order is the Aga Khan. Right. Yeah. I think we, yeah, I think we talked about that last time. I remember yeah, you talking yeah. about that. Yeah. Uh, the reason I asked about Freemasonry is because mm-hmm. you, you see a lot in some orders, like the, especially the Shriners, the Alhambra Shrine, mm-hmm. uh, the Eastern Star, these orders, you see a lot of Islamic imagery. Sort of esoteric stuff. Right. Right. And oh. I'm just wondering if the, the link there, but I think the, I, I think it's mainly through the Ismailis, not so much the Sufis. Gotcha. Gotcha. So in the in the Muslim world, Freemasonry is seen as kind of like an evil influence. Yes, it is. Okay. Let's talk about Gulen. Because uh-huh. I think this is something that is uh, very pertinent to what's going on now, especially after this coup in Turkey. And he's a Sufi. Right, right. And how is yeah? How is he related to the to Sufism? Yeah. What uh, and also too, you know, I was reading about him on Wikipedia, and he seems like he's someone that has been very cultivated, especially by the Western establishment, as being this very moderate voice of Islam, and being just somewhere like that. Like this is the guy that we want on our side because of that. How do you feel about him? I tend to agree with that. Okay, Fethullah Gulen. 
It's pronounced, by the way, Goulin. Fethullah Goulin is a, he sort of practices sort of a, a, a Turkish Sufi light, if you will, L-I-T-E. He doesn't, my understanding is he doesn't actually belong to any particular tariqa or order. He sort of does his own thing. He, he is a follower. He was trained by a guy named Saeed Nursi. Saeed Nursi died uh, the year I was born, actually, 1960. Saeed Nursi is this, uh, was this Islamic scholar and a Sufi who lived in the, he lived in the late period of the Ottoman Empire. He actually fought in World War I on the side of the Ottoman, in the Ottoman army. And then after the war, he became, the Saeed Nursi guy, became basically uh, a, a proponent of sort of an updated brand of Sufism. He, he, again, he didn't really believe in any particular order or tariqa. He believed in the precepts of Sufism, many of them, uh, to include mysticism. Uh, and he, he went sort of a different way with it. And, and then Fethullah Gulen sort of drank deeply at this well and, and sort of uh, kept the ideas going. The idea is that Islam is perfectly compatible with the modern world. Uh, you know, you can read the Quran. Again, you know, it's, it's not a strict literal reading of the Quran. You can read the Quran, interpret the Quran so that it's, it's compatible with science in particular. And so, hence, because of that, one of the big things that Nursi and then Gulen are into is education. Now, um, they believed, both of them believed that an Islamic state both of them seem to believe in a caliphate of some kind. Uh, but both of them seem to have eschewed violent jihad. In fact, Gulen, I remember reading one of Gulen's things, and he said that jihad of the mind is, or something like that, jihad of the mind, educational jihad is what they need, not, not uh, jihad of the sword. Now, I mean, you know, one could argue this is problematic in its own right if one doesn't want to be Islamized because basically Gulen, of course, like many Sufis, believes that it would be good if everybody became Muslim. Right. Lots right. of Christians. They could be better if everybody became Christian. Um, and, and and so one could say that although they've eschewed jihad, they certainly haven't abandoned what's called dawah. Dawah is uh, basically converting people to Islam. But okay, I can deal with that. You know, I – but I'm one of these guys that invites Jehovah Witnesses in when they ring my doorbell and talk to him. My wife thinks I'm crazy. <laughs> um, <laughs> I always bring the Mormon guys in and offer them coffee. No, I'm just kidding. I try to- <laughs> offer but, some um, tea. Yeah, I, you know. I love the Jehovah Witnesses, man. <laughs> oh, God, I love them. They're such nice people. But oh, some of them are just, they're just, they're not really very educated. <laughs> uh, but God love them. They care about you. <laughs> uh, so, so. What's interesting is that – so Gulen, let me back up before I go to that. Gulen, Gulen basically uh, learned from Said Norsi. I remember that uh, Gulen basically grew up in very secular Turkey. <laughs> I'm old enough to remember when there was a very secular Turkey. Right. Um, which, which, you is- know, started changing in the early 90s. Um, you, know, you know, the Ottoman Empire fell – briefly for your listeners, the Ottoman Empire fell not long after World War I ended – you know, the war ended in 1918. The Ottoman Empire technically survived until 1923, 24, when uh, Mustafa Kemal, Kemal Ataturk, and the uh, the uh, the secular reformers that created the modern state of Turkey out of sort of the ashes of the Ottoman Empire, did away with the Ottoman Sultanate, the Ottoman Caliphate, uh, 
had dissociated uh, Islam from the state in Turkey and then kept it that way really until the late 80s or 90s. And you started getting these parties, these movements in Turkey that said the pendulum has swung too far. Uh, you know, uh, 99% of the people in Turkey are Muslim. We need, and they had rules that really were actually kind of hard to really, I think, rationalize. Like, for instance, I remember back in the, I think it was the 90s, some woman got elected to the Turkish parliament and she was not allowed to cover her head. You know, she didn't want to wear a whole burqa. She just wanted to cover her hair and her head. Uh, and they said, no, you can't do that. That's too over an expression of Islam. So although a lot of people did that, you weren't allowed to do it in public. So, uh, so a lot of Turks uh, decided that the pendulum had swung too far towards too far towards secularism, and started supporting these parties that wanted to bring, as they saw, Islam back into the public square. And uh, before that really got going, though, however, I believe Turgut Ozal was still president. It was back in '91. Uh, uh, Gulen left the country. Because he was considered to be too Islamic. He wanted Muslims in the government. He wanted his followers to get into the government. Now, hmm. this followed upon the fact that Gulen, back in the 60s, 60s and 70s and 80s, had started this massive um, charter school system. And in fact, according to what I've read, next to the Catholic Church, the Gulen people run the second largest sort of charter or religious school system on the face of the planet. Interesting. Thousands of schools, um, and they have by they have several hundred schools in the United States. In fact, not about ten miles from me is a school called the Fulton Science Academy in Fulton County, which is a county Atlanta's in. Which I always want to call it the Vulcan Science Academy, which I think would be so much cooler. <laughs> but the Fulton Science Academy, because these these Glen schools in the United States purport to be STEM schools, you know, science, technology, education, math schools. Okay. And in fact, I know a couple actually went to our church who sent their kids to that school. And they said they didn't see any evidence of, you know, any attempt to Islamize anybody. It was all just math and science and that sort of thing. Uh, the charge has been levying in a lot of other places, particularly in Texas. I understand that, that they're sort of Trojan horses for Islamization. I don't know if that's true in the United States. Uh, I do know that it, that they run extensive school systems in Central Asia. Uh, they're, they've got a very big presence in Africa, places like that. And the Gulen schools are considered to be really good schools. And I do know in those places, they don't have many qualms really about teaching Islam along with, you know, quadratic equations. But, but, um, Gulen, Gulen basically was accused, and I think probably rightly so, uh, of trying to make, of wanting the government in Turkey to be more Islamic. And mind you, this is back in the early 90s. So he left the country and he went to uh, Pennsylvania uh, and he managed to set up shop and has a very large estate in Pennsylvania. And he's quite wealthy from what I understand uh, because the school system thing brings him in a lot of money. Uh, so when the AK party was created, Akvakokanma, Justice and Development Party, uh, of which Erdogan is the head, which is the majority party slightly in Turkey. Um, in the early years, when when Erdogan was coming to power, because first he was mayor of Istanbul and then and then moved up, they were very good friends. And they, in fact, my understanding is that that that, that uh, Erdogan, President Erdogan, 
uh, was heavily involved in the Gulen movement. <clears throat> but then a few years ago, they had a big falling out. And I, no one can really explain this. They had a big falling out. I think that uh, Gulen actually started criticizing Erdogan, uh, saying, I think he believed that he was moving too quickly uh, in trying to re-Islamize Turkey. Uh, Erdogan thought that sort of he had been betrayed and thought that there were uh, people behind the scenes in various levels of society throughout Turkey that were Gulenists, as they say, and loyal to Gulen. And then, of course, we know what happened is that uh, the attempted coup a few months ago, uh, Erdogan blames Gulen and the followers of Gulen who had been infiltrated into the military for this. I honestly don't know the truth of this. Um, I do know they're having basically sort of, if you will, a witch hunt in Turkey. And there have been thousands, if not tens of thousands of people, uh, some of whom I'm sure were legitimate followers of Gulen and some of whom may have just been accused of it, who have been removed from you know, teaching positions and purged out of the military and things like that. So <clears throat> it's interesting because I tend to see Gulen, based on my study of his writings and, and his movement, as really a pause, a net positive in the Islamic world. Uh, because again, they don't believe in jihad unless, you know, people will say, well, you can't believe anything any Muslim says because they practice taqiyya, you know, uh, the, 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 the institutionalized religious lying. Uh, I don't think you can carry on a movement that long and do that much stuff and, 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 and live a lie. I think Gulen means what he says. Sure. I sh I'm sure he wants, you know, he wants the government in Turkey to be more Islamic. Does that mean he wants to bring back the caliphate and chop people's heads off? No, I don't believe that. So I don't know. Was he, were some of his people involved in the attempted coup? I think so. Was Gulen behind it? I don't know of any evidence of that. Uh, I, I really don't. Uh, I mean, it may exist. Uh, I don't have, I don't have access to, you know, Intel circles. Uh, but so that basically what it is, is it, it's, they both have, the interesting thing is Erdogan and Gulen basically in, in some ways have the same view of what needs to be done. Turkey needs to be more Islamic. Um, they probably need some sort of caliphate, you know, not the stupid faux caliphate as from their point of view that, you know, al-Baghdadi has, but a real caliphate like the Ottomans had. Um, and they need to spread their view of Islam, Turkish sort of Sufi light, uh, non-jihadist Islam around the world. Uh, so I think maybe part of the acrimony between Erdogan and Gulen is simply because, frankly, they're so much alike. And there's not room, as they see it, in, uh, in there's not room in the Islamic world, certainly not in Turkey for both of them. Right. It seems like too that there's a there there is somewhat of a nationalist um, bit to Erdogan as yeah, well yeah. that he believes in Pan Turkism he wants to he wants to unite those countries yes. in Central Asia with that's Turkey one reason and, and, and Gulen the same way that's one reason uh, they've got so many of those those schools in Central Asia all those places with Stan on the end of their name right right all the stands yeah. <laughs> You know what? Let me tell you something. I, I went, and this is the other guy I was mentioned a minute ago, and I said, I'm not going to say that yet. Let me say it now. There's sort of two strands of thought that came out of, of, of uh, this side Norsi guy. One is Gulen, right? The other one is by this other guy that's considered sort of a nut, but but he has a quite a fairly large following. Is a guy called Adnan Oktar, who goes by the name Harun Yahya. <laughs> I don't know if you ever looked at Adnan Oktar. I went to Turkey in 2008, interviewed this guy. Interesting guy. He is considered to be sort of a cult leader. 
He also is a disciple of Said Nursi. He also believes he's more nationalist. I think you can say he believes that there should be a uh, there should be a Turkish caliphate. And if you go look at this guy's website, the Turkish caliphate extends I don't know all the way to the border of China or something. Um, right. It should be peaceful. Uh, it should not be uh, imposed by force. And he has some interesting ideas. For instance, he's always saying that you know. Uh, that, that 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 Muslims should Muslims should be positive toward Jews and Muslims and Jews should get along. Uh, but the big thing about this guy, Anand Oktar, that he emphasizes that was a view of Said Norsi that Gulen doesn't emphasize as much is the belief of the Mahdi. Anand Oktar is a guy that believes that the Mahdi is going to come very soon, the Islamic Messiah. And in fact, there are some indications that Anand Oktar thinks that he himself is the Mahdi. Uh-huh. So. Uh, and Gulen, one of the things, I mean, I was going to blog on this. I've gotten around to it. There's an article a couple of weeks ago in one of the Turkish newspapers. I think it was Hurriyet, which is sort of a, you know, organ, a mouthpiece for the government, which, which is that one of the criticisms that they're directing toward Gulen is that he's claiming to be the Mahdi and that, that he's not the real Mahdi. And then Gulen said, you know, on his website or somewhere, I, I've never claimed to be the Mahdi. But Anad Oktar, uh, is an interesting chap, and I think that based on what I've been able to ascertain about him, he he won't say that he's the Mahdi, but when his when his followers say that he is, he doesn't deny it. So yeah, as long as the checks keep rolling in, right? And as long as the you know, <laughs> as long as the well endowed blondes keep showing up at his meetings, uh, then I, he doesn't have a problem with it. I, I think Luke wants to sign up for this. Uh, I, I can't. Well, I'm serious. Go look at Adan Oktar's website. It's like the women are all like, they're like clones, you know? <laughs> I probably couldn't spell that, but yeah. I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll write him a letter or something. Dr. Furnish, before we let you go, I wanted to ask you uh, about something else real quick. Um, uh-huh. Down uh, where you... Or in your area, where in Atlanta, I know that there was a, I can't remember what county it was, but somewhere south of Atlanta, where there was a mosque that was opening up and there was some uh, discussion about it. How do you feel about some of this resistance to mosques opening up? Because we had the same kind of thing happen here in Murfreesboro a few years ago. Oh, yeah, the Murfreesboro thing, yeah. Yeah. I, I was well, in jail with one of the dudes that was part of the protest. Really? <laughs> <laughs> Wait, you can be jailed in America for protesting now? Well, he, 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 uh, I did think he, he vandalize something? Yeah, he threw a Molotov or something like that. Oh, at, uh, yeah, at the yeah, crowd. That's, that's not a good idea. Yeah. Well, look, I, my opinion is this it's that under the First Amendment, people have the right to worship, people have a right to build mosques. And right. I have no problem with that. What I do have a problem with sometimes, though, however, is the, <clears throat> is the fact that, um, you know, we don't really know who are funding. Where is all the funding coming for this big, large mosque? You know, that Murfreesboro Mosque, wasn't it like some ungodly square footage for like 200 people? I think it was supposed to be pretty big. Yeah, I think you're right. I, I remember reading it was like 60,000 square feet or something, you know, and it's like, but and, and there were like 200 Muslims in the town. So, okay, first of all, I'd say, first of all, why do you need a mosque that big? Secondly, where's the money coming from? I mean, I don't think it's I don't think it's unreasonable to ask where are you getting the funding for all that. Um, and thirdly, I think it's perfectly reasonable to ask. You know, can can we ask which you know which sector branch of Islam are you? I, mean, I remember getting into this argument with um, 
this guy, I, you know, I live in Atlanta, but I'm originally from Northern Kentucky and not far from where my mom lives in Northern Kentucky, just South of Cincinnati. A couple of years ago, there was this plan to build this mosque. Again, it was like, you know, it wasn't like the Murfreesboro thing, but it was, they were going to purchase this land, this group of Muslims and build this mosque. And there were like 60 Muslims. I mean, it's Northern Kentucky. I think that was every Muslim within a hundred miles. Yeah. And they were going to build like a 20,000 square foot mosque or something. Okay. And, you know, the people around there were like, well, can we just, can you just tell us more? Something? Like, like, for instance, where are you suddenly getting all this money? There's like 60 of you. Okay. Um, I don't know. You ever been through a church construction? 60 people, unless they're like all inordinately wealthy, ain't going to build much of a, of, of an edifice. Uh, I mean, I've been through this at several churches, but anyway. That's no, uh, true. It's true. So, so, so I, I contacted because my mom and a couple of people up there asked me to contacted the guy that writes for the, the religion writer that was writing on this for the Cincinnati, Northern Kentucky paper, uh, the Inquirer, I believe it's called. And he, you know, it was like he was, he was defensive from the get go. Why are you asking about this? I'm saying, oh, well, first of all, I said, first of all, I don't think your reporting is very good. I said, if someone builds a church, you will say whether it's a Catholic or a Baptist or a Lutheran or a Presbyterian church. I said, you are aware there, there are different branches of Islam, right? You're just saying Muslim. Okay. Is it, is it, is it Sunni? Is it Shia? Is it Ismaili? Is it, is it, you know, what is it? You know, I mean, can you get off your butt and go do some research instead of just, <laughs> because basically this guy's assumption was that if the Baptists in Northern Kentucky are against it, they must just be a bunch of, you know, uh, defensive backwards inbred rubes. And, uh, he was going to be for it. I'm like, it's not your job to cheerlead. It's your job to report. So, uh, you know, I, I had this, it anyway, it turned out that they didn't even wind up building the mosque because suddenly mysteriously the funding, you know, dried up anyway. So, but I had this discussion a few years ago. You remember when, when Herman Cain was running for president, I actually was asked to render a few suggestions to the Cain campaign, uh, which they, you know, then blindly ignored. But anyway, they asked huh. for my opinion. Um, and I don't remember, you remember at one point Herman put his foot in his mouth, something about people shouldn't build mosques. And he might've been talking about Murfreesboro for all I remember. Uh, yeah, it was around like, the same time. So it yeah. Could have been. At, and then like three days later, he's totally done an about face and he's like going to visit a mosque somewhere. It was some guy from CARE, uh, Council on American Islamic Relations. Uh, so, but, but, you know, I basically said, look, I, I, First Amendment, Islam has the same rights as the other religions in this country do. But on the other hand, it'd be, be stupid to deny that there's an inordinate problem with Islamic terrorism. And I think it's perfectly reasonable for a community to say, Again, what sect of Islam are you? Where's your funding coming from? Just, you know, just some things like that. You know, I got a friend that's going through this in New Jersey and she's, she finally moved. She was like right across, like right down the street from her. They, some group was building a big mosque and it was like the government just, the, the local government backed up by the federal government just rode roughshod over the, the local ordinances about, you know, how much frontage you have to have and, and, and distance from the other houses and stuff. And if you dared say anything asking, why are you doing this? You were accused of Islamophobia. Hmm. So, so I, I, you know, I, I could sort of see both sides, you know, but I will say that I take great issue with conservatives that say they're really stupid, make the really stupid statement that Islam is not a religion. Well, it most certainly is a religion. Yeah. Of course yeah. it is. Uh, but on the other hand, I think that it's reasonable, like I said, to ask some of the questions I just raised. Yeah, I believe so, too. That, that is a good point. It's an aspect of it I didn't think about. Rob, is there anything you wanted to ask? 
Um, no, that's a lot to process. I, there's really people that say <laughs> that that's not a religion. Oh, I've heard it many times. What's the talk, basis there? Uh, because they'll say because it's predominantly a political movement, not a religion. I'm like, well, it's actually both. Yeah. It can't be both. There, there, I think there's a hard distinction. Like they don't really make a distinction between politics and religion. To them, it's no, all the same Muslims thing. Don't. You're yeah. right. Right. You're right. Yeah. You're right. But you know what? Let me say something on that real quick. You know, you you will get a lot of people, uh, particularly in in these apologist sort of propaganda groups like CARE, <clears throat> that will say that, you know, uh, if you were opposed to Sharia law, then you are somehow Islamophobic or something. I'm like, that's really annoying because, frankly, you don't need Sharia law to practice as a Muslim, right? That would be like a Catholic saying, I can't go to Mass on Friday unless canon law, uh, you know, is imposed on the United States or at least the local community. No, right. we never said that in the United States. You, uh, Sharia law and practicing worshiping as a Muslim are two entirely different things. And but but some people, not not all, but some people in some groups will try to conflate the two and say that if you're opposed to Sharia law, you're opposed to Islam. No, I'm opposed to Sharia law. I have no problems with Islam, but uh, Sharia law basically presupposes that the governmental system uh, will impose Islam for you. And see, if someone is coming to the United States with that idea. They probably just need to leave that behind or not come here because we're not going to do that here. Yeah. Yeah. You know, just like we don't impose canon law or we don't impose, you know, we don't go look at the Westminster Confession and impose Calvin's laws that the end in Geneva on everybody. We don't do that either. Right. Separation of church and state. That's what exactly. it all means. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Well, yep. Dr. Furnish, uh, w- before we let you go, I want to know what you're working on now and also where everybody can get your books and what books you have out. Oh, well, just go to Amazon.com and put my name in, Timothy Furnish, if you are NISH, and my four books will come up. Uh, three on Islam, three on the Middle East, and one on Middle Earth, my Tolkien book. I'm actually yeah. writing I'm actually writing a second Tolkien book um, and hopefully get it done by the end of the year. And as I mentioned, I'm writing a short book on Islam, uh, and I'm trying to come up with a good name for it because everybody else has already used Defeating Jihad or Defeating ISIS. So i got to find up with, come up with a pithy title. But it's basically a book looking at, as I said, how earlier Islamic states, particularly the Ottomans, dealt with, you know, basically Islamic fundamentalist challenges, as well as some Sufi ones. So that's what I'm working on, and they'll eventually show up on Amazon with my other books. I'd love to get you back, get back on to talk about that one, and that would be, that sounds really fascinating. I'll let you know when I get it done, God willing. Absolutely. Well, the Tolkien book, is that uh, more going to be the political stuff? No, yeah, the political one's not. This is the military one. The oh, political okay. one is called High Towers and Strong Places, A Political History of Middle Earth. In fact, I actually a couple of weeks ago spoke at Dragon Con here in, in Atlanta. On oh, the- nice. Yeah. Oh, yeah? And, yeah, that was fun. Um, and then the second one I'm writing, which is going to be the main one, is called Bright Swords and Glorious Warriors, colon, A Military History of Middle Earth. So... We'll have to talk about that 24, too. Twenty-four battles from the first through the third age, and I, I, I'm trying to find somebody. I think I got somebody to like do like the battle schematics, you know, the campaign battles with the <laughs> with the, with the little uh, organizational charts and everything. I'm doing it for Tolkien. You know what? I got to figure out for a good way to like you know make a dragon and such for that for air assets, but you know I, I need to I need a symbol for that. But I'll think of something. Cool. Cool. Well, yep. stay in the live for us. We're going to close out this section, and guys, we will be back on Conspiracy Normal. 
That was a good interview there with uh, Dr. Timothy Furnish talking about Sufism. I, I, I think as I think as always, Rob, you were kind of just like soaking it all in, and it's it's all kinds of names and information. And yeah, well, I think facts. I said this last time. Like a- after that last interview, like ninety percent of what I know about the whole Muslim culture is from Dr. Furnish, and now it's even like, <laughs> oh yeah, I'm kind of spun. <laughs> even more. Like, did you sleep through that one? No, I didn't sleep, per se, <laughs> but <laughs> I was playing Pokemon and Facebook. And <laughs> was there a Pokemon in here in the in the There studio? was. There was a Polywag in Rob's backyard. Oh. I don't want those things hanging around. <laughs> I, I did. I got him. I've, I mean, I, I've been I've been whooping ass in the gyms around here, though. you got to defend your territory, dude. You can't let these transplants come in and take every gym. Yeah, you can't do that, man. You nope. go over there to, uh, what is it, uh, Centennial Park? That's right. Where, the, where uh, the Pokey Spot is? That's actually where I was today for hours. <laughs> well, haven't, you got, haven't you gotten sick of this stuff yet? No, like, man. I play games. I'm a gamer, dude. I play games all day. I was playing Mortal Kombat earlier. Oh, yeah? Speaking of games, have you played uh, No Man's Sky at all? No, <laughs> no, well, I'm not, you. I'm not interested <laughs> after I, all the, the, uh, reviews and stuff. And man, then, I followed that game for years and I was so interested. Me too. And, I was really hyped about it. And it came out and I, I, you know, paid full price for it and it's man. Oh, you got it. I do. I do. I got it inside <laughs> oh, right now. Oh man. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> so much potential. It's just a void. It is. It's an empty, lonely it's, game. If you How is it a void? Okay, well, here's the premise. Here's what we were promised. All right, there's this company worked for years developing um, basically math algorithm algorithms that will uh, generate an entire galaxy. So there's like 18 quintillion planets in this video game because they're all generated on the fly using like you know various algorithms and stuff. So the developers have not seen everything that's in the game, and there's creatures on these planets, and there's different resources and. You know, the whole point was that you're supposed to, like, be able to fly around in this free, open, crazy, awesome world. But then, like, we, we buy the game and everything pretty much looks the same. And <laughs> it's sure there's 18 quintillion plans, but whatever. It doesn't matter because it's like, oh, I, I go to the next place. Everything looks the same. I right, go to the next place. And the whole point <laughs> is to find the middle of the galaxy, which is not hard and it's not fun and it doesn't accomplish anything. So, <laughs> right. It's like, it, so. If it was a technical demo, like, look, this is what we managed to do. We managed to create this thing. Okay, that's cool. But like, to pay sixty dollars for a game that's supposed to be engaging, no. Um, what happened too? Like, well, the biggest problem is that they were trying to meet a deadline, and they met the deadline, but the game is like only half finished, or actually like a quarter of the way finished. Yeah, it's like you can experience all of it in three hours. That's not worth the sixty dollars price tag. Yeah. Huh. And everyone is really pissed off because there were there was some really high expectations for it. So is this going to go down in, as one of the, like disasters in the gaming world? Yes. Yeah, it's not it's not quite as bad as like ET for Nintendo, but <laughs> yeah, where people were just were throwing away the cartridges. Well, in the well, the company that made it buried like all of them somewhere in the desert and won't tell you where they're buried. <laughs> well, <laughs> I wanted to get Luke in on this real quick. Because he was not here a couple of weeks ago, but uh, the clown stuff is con- apparently continuing. 
Oh, thank it, God. And, and has it, 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 I think it spread to North Carolina. And then there were a couple of kids that were chased down the street by guys dressed as clowns welding knives in Athens, Georgia. Yes. Two schools were shut down. A two, yes. Two schools were shut down in, in Alabama. So I said uh, every week it's getting closer to Nashville. I'm starting to get really nervous. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to find these uh trying to find these articles that I have about this uh about the school shutdown in Alabama, which was blamed on some kind of Facebook group. Um This has gotten really strange, man. So what's your thoughts on this, Luke? Uh, well, I where I'm coming from, man, and the way I see it, I I have friend like younger friends that that are still that still love the whole like kind of shock value culture and like hey you know let's do something crazy you know what i mean and and uh-huh. while, while other people will perceive it as like oh scary you know and i'm freaked out and stuff like that like you have to look at it really like logically and just think about hey this this is just some kid dressed in a damn clown outfit in the woods like trying to scare people <laughs> you know what i mean he's probably a stoner he probably gets high every day and he's just like Hey man, like let's do something. And his buddy's like, "Yeah, I got this clown costume, dude." <laughs> you know what I well, mean? <laughs> but, do you, but why do you think the that the police haven't been able to catch anybody? And it just seems like because it, the police it, are slow responders, dude. Like if, if there's not someone like getting murdered or something like in the act, like they won't show up. Yeah, they, but you they, get a lot of people scared about what's about what's going on in those communities. Right? But it's also randomly popping up across the nation, you know. So it's like, right? They some small town they don't know that the clowns are coming to them next. You know so, what I mean? So what is it about clowns that just it, it, people are because everyone? Why clowns? Well, why why is this is this happening? It, every everyone. Doesn't I mean it, it's an outdated like archaic sort of concept like yeah. clown nobody thinks clowns are funny anymore like nobody thinks they're well except for your weird niche groups or whatever but like no nobody thinks clowns are funny nobody's interested in like seeing clowns perform their weird circus tricks and stuff so they they they've become like a a strange fringe like kind of sort of just creepy deal ordeal you know you were thinking that juggalos were. uh well, yeah, we're involved because there there still is a juggalo culture, too. Right. Oh, yeah, it's huge. And, and, and like, think about this. Like, if you're some some uh, dude that used to be a juggalo or still is a juggalo and you're like you're watching the news, local news, reading the papers or whatever, and you see that there's clowns and hiding in the woods in your neighborhood, like, wouldn't you want to go like join and be part of it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You know, like, like, oh, dude, I'm carrying down. your carrying your six pack of Fago with yeah. you, right? <laughs> well, I mean, like, you, you gotta. They're trying to continue their little legacy or whatever. You're like, oh, there's, uh, there's, it's cool. I mean, it's fun. You know, like scaring people and yeah. Uh, but yeah, there there is danger in it too. Like, you will get shot. Well, Maybe. that's the thing. Nobody's been shot yet. I know somebody's been shot by the police. And they're lucky. No one has no one has been shot by by like there, a guy went out with a gun because he saw a clown. At, this I think was in South Carolina. North no, this is North Carolina. Saw a clown uh, talking to his daughter or something. He told his daughter to get inside. He goes out there with a gun. Doesn't see anybody. No one has been shot. No one has been. There have been people arrested, but they've not been linked to any of this stuff. 
just on the fact that they probably were professional clowns. Like when Robert <laughs> Guffey tell us about the guy in, in, in Rhode Island or wherever in the eighties that got beat up by a bunch of people, but oh, yeah. he had nothing to do with it. You know, here's the thing about the, uh, the Alabama school, by the way. This was on Wednesday, actually. Two schools in Escambia County, Alabama, are on lockdown for the reported threat of Flomo clowns in the area. That's clowns with a K, by the way. The clowns were spotted near the grounds of Flomaton High School and Escambia County High School in Atmore, prompting school officials to put the schools on lockdown early Thursday after similar incidents have occurred in other southern states. The Flomo clowns have a Facebook page where they say, I kill people for a living. There is more threatening language on their Facebook page, including several gun emojis and one post from Thursday stating it's going down tonight. News 5 is told there is no credible threat of a gun on the campus of either school. Mike Lambert, a chief deputy with the Escambia County Sheriff's Office, says the situation is being taken seriously. I was actually there, too, for, uh, for work at one time in that town. In Atwood. Oh, yeah? In yeah, Alabama? God. Now, now, here's something. Here, here's something. This is from September 7th. This might have been the one I was talking about. Man with machete chases person wearing clown mask into woods. Yeah. Greensboro, North Carolina. Police in North Carolina say a man with a machete chased a person wearing a clown mask into the woods near an apartment complex. A statement from police in Greensboro, North Carolina says officers responded to a 911 call Tuesday from an apartment complex where a witness reported seeing a person wearing a clown mask, red curly wig, yellow spotted shirt, blue clown pants, and clown shoes coming out of the woods. Spokeswoman Susan Danielson said another witness wielding a machete chased the person who disappeared into the woods. Didn't find him, though. Officers searched the area, but couldn't find anyone matching the description. She says no children were involved in the incident. There have also been unconfirmed reports of clowns trying to lure children into the woods in Winston-Salem and in Greenville, South Carolina, which we talked about earlier. So there you go. So it wasn't a gun, like I said before, but it did get a machete. No one's been caught. And that's the thing. Like, we're in the South, right? All this is happening in the South. Well, there was one incident <laughs> in Ohio. Like, we everybody's got guns down here. We're all the NRA-loving rednecks down here, okay? Somebody is going to see these hey, guys. Hey, hey, and don't shoot. say redneck. Oh, yeah, it's true. Yeah, you can't say that. They're going to they're gonna shoot. They're, uh, you would think that somebody would have been shot by now. But no, nobody's been shot. No one's even been been wounded or grazed. It's just... Fading um, into nothingness. Well, and, uh, the the popular belief is that everyone down here does have a gun. But really, dude, I mean, yeah, there. I, I have a ton of like you know country friends that that love shooting and whatnot. But how many of them actually do carry? I mean, if you if you look at it from like kind of a statistics sort of uh, standpoint, like there's yeah. not a whole lot of people that are carrying. It's, it's but even no, the guy so different with, than where I grew up in Michigan. Even the guy with the machete, even then, you know, like, he, like if he found the guy, he was, who knows what he was going to do. He brought a machete for a reason. Yeah. He was intent on finding him. The, these, so, these clowns have a sophisticated escape plan, then it sounds like. Well, they must. They must. I'm we, and you know, I'm still not entirely convinced that it's not a, um, viral marketing campaign either way you come in my yard dressed like a clown you're taking your life in your own hands yep <laughs> which by the way rob's gonna go see a, a play with clowns I in am, it. tomorrow night <laughs> based on my fears what is it it's called clown bar at east nash or it's in the east room in east nashville oh man it's a uh, it's the uh 
It's an exploration of the seedy underbelly of organized clown crime. <laughs> <laughs> well, ask them for any insight into what's going on. Yeah, I really. Will. Hey, honestly, maybe yeah. they're the ones. Maybe the gad about theater is the one pulling <laughs> this off. I, I mean, like this, it makes me and my and my little buddy Arthur want to like go dress up in clown suits and go <laughs> go like torture someone. It sounds kind of fun to me. Well. Hopefully you don't get shot. <laughs> Maybe you'll fade into. We got to do it somewhere where the, where we know that people will have their smartphones out so they well, can like get us on video and go viral. Let's go from phantom clowns to media clowns, and God, it's like two weeks between shows, and I get something that I want to talk about, and then it's already kind of out of the news cycle two or three days later, but. I did think that this was rather interesting, especially the election year that we're in. Gary Johnson, libertarian candidate for president. Not allowed to debate. Not allowed to debate, yeah, as, as we found out. Big surprise, you know. Right, no. <laughs> um, I mean, the, there was never any doubt in my mind that he was going to be, that he wasn't going to be in, you know what I mean? Uh, so... Not a big surprise there, but apparently he had really messed up on the news channel, MSNBC. I want to play this clip and we'll talk about it. So put your headphones on now. Oh my God. What would you do if you were elected about Aleppo? About Aleppo. And what is Aleppo? You're kidding. No. Aleppo is in Syria. It's the, uh, it's the epicenter of the refugee crisis. Okay, got it. Got it. Okay. Well, with regard to Syria, um, I do think that it's a mess. I think that the only way we, we, that we deal with Syria uh, is to join hands uh, with Russia to diplomatically bring that at an end. But when we've aligned ourselves with, when we've supported the opposition, uh, the Free Syrian Army, the Free Syrian Army is also uh, coupled with, uh, with the Islamists. Uh, and then the fact that we're also supporting the Kurds, uh, and this is it's just it's just a mess and that this is the result of uh, regime change uh, that we end up supporting and um, inevitably these regime changes have led to a less safe world so yeah. an alliance with russia is the solution to syria do you think vladimir oh, putin oh, and russia are a good and, and reliable partner well, um, I, th I think diplomatically that that, is the, that that has to be the solution, is joining hands uh, with uh, Russia to bring, to bring this civil war to, to an end. Joe. Um, so Aleppo is the center of a lot of people's concerns across the planet about uh, the, the terrible humanitarian crisis that's unfolding not only in Syria but especially in Aleppo. You asked what is Aleppo do you really think that foreign policy is so insignificant that somebody running for president of the United States shouldn't even know what Aleppo is where Aleppo is why Aleppo is so important well uh, no I, I do understand Aleppo um, and I 
I, I understand uh, the crisis that is going on, but when we involve ourselves militarily, when we involve ourselves in these humanitarian issues, uh, we end up um, we end up with a situation that, in most cases, is not better, uh, and in many cases, ends up being worse. Uh, and we find ourselves always uh, politicians are up against the wall um, and ask what to do about these things, and this is why we end up committing military force uh, in areas that, um, like I say, at the end of the day, have an unintended consequence uh, of making things worse. Hey there, I'm Chris okay, Hayes from MSNBC. There. Thanks for watching. You don't have to hear Chris Hayes. Uh, <laughs> should have cut that part off. But anyway, all right, before I start <laughs> going into my rant here, how do you guys think Gary Johnson handled that? Uh, I think he definitely should have known what Aleppo is, but I think he didn't handle it gracefully. <laughs> wah, wah, wah. And I really would like to know your opinion on the rest of what he had to say as far as his uh, diplomatic policies go. Do you think he's right as far as the whole Russia thing and how to deal with the Syrian issue in general, aside from what's going on in Aleppo? Okay. We, we did talk about Aleppo uh, yeah. a couple shows ago, right? I think one with Rebecca Roth. We talked about the little boy. Uh, Alyssa was here for that one. Uh, so I will say this. I know what Aleppo is. <laughs> um, but then again, as someone that has studied history and studied the ancient world, I've known where, what Aleppo is and where it is for a long time. But not everybody has that knowledge. And I will probably guarantee you that... Uh, Mike Barnacle that asked that question to Gary Johnson probably until a few weeks ago did not know where Aleppo was either. Um, I can't say that for sure, but I just have that, you know, I didn't know until I saw that video with that little boy on Facebook. Exactly. That's most people did not right. know where it is. Um, so I'm not going to denigrate or down or downgrade anyone Mike Barnacle or Gary Johnson or whoever for not knowing what Aleppo is or where it is or that it's a city in Syria. It's kind of <laughs> yeah, weird but, geographic knowledge that a lot of people know, just that it's in the news uh, that all of a sudden people know about yeah, it. But when, when you're like, you're going to be a candidate for president, though, like. Okay, look, this is the way that I look at this, okay? And I will tell you, Gary Johnson... I don't think he's the most articulate guy. In fact, when I watched the libertarian debate, because I will admit this, I am leaning towards them to vote for, because I don't believe that either Trump or Hillary have are who I should vote for. I don't, I don't vote Democrat or Republican. In fact, I almost refuse to now vote third party. Cheers. Um, yeah, really. I'm there. I've been there since 2008, basically, almost. Um, but I watched that debate, or that rather it was a town hall, and Bill Weld, the vice presidential candidate, is much more an articulate guy than Gary Johnson. Gary Johnson, he kind of stutters, and he kind of hems and haws a little bit, and he says, uh, a lot, like, I tend to do. <laughs> and Bill Weld was much more 
you know, he his speech was flowing and he so it seemed to me like, okay, maybe it should be the other way around. But I don't think it really matters. I think they see themselves as partners. They're not going to win anyway, so whatever. Um, you, you know. So one of the things that happened was was that what you don't hear is the very is the part of the interview where they were asking Gary Johnson all these different questions, and then all of a sudden Mike Barnacle comes out and says, "What about Aleppo?" He just brings it out of left field. He doesn't explain what Aleppo is. He doesn't say Syria. He says Aleppo. And so Gary Johnson said, well, I thought he was talking about an acronym. That's why he said, what is Aleppo? What is Aleppo? Not where is Aleppo? And that's why I asked you what you think about like his general view of Syria. Do you think he can understand what's going on in Syria? And do you think he has the right idea about what's going on there without knowing what Aleppo is? Sure. Absolutely. As soon as he knew it was Syria, he knew right away. He he came up with the answers of what, how he felt about it, that we right. can't have – we keep pouring in money, we keep pouring in troops, or we keep pouring in resources, and it it always ends up backfiring <clears throat> on us as it, as it always as it always does. And that's that's what he said. Now, something I found interesting, okay, was a younger guy – I don't know his name – and actually was sitting right next to – his name was four. Last name was four, but he used to be a congressman from here in Tennessee. I remember the guy's first name, but he um, he said, "Oh, you think that uh, you said you heard it in the clip? You think that we should let Russia? We should partner with Russia and Vladimir Putin? Oh, oh my God, we should do that. That's been that's been the Democratic Party line." Yeah. Lately, especially in regards to Trump. Well, and you this, said before that the one thing you agree with Trump on is his foreign policy regarding Putin. So sure, and it, that's been the, that's so that's been their talking point. Remember when the emails came out? Um, WikiLeaks released the emails that showed how shitty they were towards Bernie Sanders, and how they basically blocked him from getting the nomination. Well, what did they do? They blamed Russia for it. And they, and then Trump came out there and said, and told, uh, and said his stupid statement of, Hey, bring us more. Hey, you got some more emails? Bring them, you know? So <laughs> that was stupid on his end. But the Democrats are trying to re- de- deflect it and say that it's Vladimir Putin's behind everything. Okay. So that's been, so that's been, and MSNBC is in the pocket of the Democrats. They're in the pocket of the Democratic Party, just how, Fox News is on the pocket of the other side. Right. These guys are more, they're much more in that Obama, Hillary Clinton camp. That's who they work for. And so two things there. One, first one is, do they, do they now see that Gary Johnson is actually going to take away votes from Hillary and not Trump and might cause her to lose the election? So that's why let's get him, please. Let's get him. Well, because, you know, he believes in a lot of things that young people believe in, Bernie Sanders supporters. Like, he believes in legalization of marijuana. A lot of Bernie supporters have gone to him. Have gone yeah, Exactly. Have gone to Gary yeah, Johnson. The, the way the DNC was obviously rigged and then the dude was assassinated after yeah. he... Yeah, well, I mean, of that knowledge. Yeah. Well, I'm not, you know, they're they're trying to, but they're trying to to, they're trying to give it a zinger to make him look stupid because you know he probably smoked a bowl right before he came in there. It's Gary <laughs> Johnson, okay? <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I I had this stoner look at me when I when I delivered to him the other day, and he was like, "Hey, dude, 
check out Gary Johnson for the selection, bro. Okay, so this is the type. <laughs> this this is this is what Gary Johnson. Uh, I, I doubt that they care that what he what Gary Johnson thinks about Aleppo. All right, so that's the first element. Are they scared that he's yeah, going to pull I'm, away well, the I, votes? I agree with you. I mean, what would happen if they would have asked uh, Hillary and, and Trump about Aleppo? What would they have said? said about it you know what i mean they probably would have been more well i mean they they, made, they yeah exactly okay second aspect of it is the statement about russia um oddly enough the weekend after actually that friday i think this happened on a tuesday or a wednesday this interview we came to an agreement with the Russians what? in we're, Syria. We're working with them? The Obama administration. You know, the people that MSNBC are a mouthpiece for, that they constantly apologize for? John Kerry, Secretary of State, last I checked under the Obama administration, signed a ceasefire agreement. So we worked with the Russians of Vladimir Putin. But, God, for Gary Johnson to even suggest. Meanwhile, it's going on and it's happening right there. You know, it's happening in Russia or wherever they're having the negotiations. And part of the ceasefire agreement, incidentally, and this is interesting, is now we've turned and this happens two weeks after I said it. Now we've turned against the Al Nusra front. Remember, we got those pictures of the little boy in Syria covered in dust from the guys in the Al Nusra front who were supposed to be our friends. Now, as part of the agreement that we made with Russia and the evil Vladimir Putin, all of a sudden, we've turned against the Al Nusra front. They're not our allies anymore. We've always been at war with East Asia. Eurasia is our friend. What book is that from, Rob? I know you know this. What, 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 say it again. We've always been at war with East Asia. Eurasia, Eurasia is our friend. I have no idea. 1984. Oh, shit. <laughs> Same thing that happened then, right? Same thing you see in that book. In 1984, mm-hmm. they're in a constant state of war with somebody. You got three blocks, Oceania, East Asia, Eurasia, in Orwell's fictional universe. Right, it's just heightened propaganda. They keep switching. They say, oh, one week they're at war with East Asia, and they're allies with Eurasia. Next week they're at war with Eurasia, allies wow. with East Asia. That's This is what is going on now, right? Yal Nusser was our friend a few days ago. Now we signed this agreement with the evil Russians that Gary Johnson suggested that was part of the, was somebody that suggested we do that and got a holy hell and righteous indignation from the guys that on Morning Joe, give me a break. <laughs> <laughs> but this is how fast the news cycle has gone now. That this ceasefire now seems to be um, in turmoil because yesterday, or yeah, yes, Friday, I believe. Supposedly, we were bombing ISIS in Syria, and our forces bombed 
Syrian army forces that we're not supposed to be attacking. We were never supposed to be attacking them anyway because we're not officially at war with them. But under terms of the ceasefire agreement, we attack ISIS. We team up with Russia to, to attack ISIS. Well, accidentally, whether that's in quote, I'll put it in quotation marks because that's what's being said. You have this, uh, you have us firing on Syrian army forces. Yeah, but that's, that's way more common than any of us want to believe. Yeah. That our military accidentally strikes some civilian, right. you know, right. Building or some, you know, some target is not Oops. what we thought it was or yeah. yeah. Right. And all of a sudden the Russians walked out of the UN, the UN meeting that they were, and apparently some of the, they felt the language from the UN ambassador, whoever, or representative wasn't, wasn't good enough for them. And so they walked out and this is the kind of thing that just shows how confusing it is. Like I've said before, how confusing it is on the ground there in Syria. You have so many of these groups and everybody's switching sides all the time. And incidentally, that happened yesterday. The, the UN meeting, you've got this, uh, You've got a UN meeting going on right now. And this was the same day that same night that this bomb went off in lower Manhattan that happened yesterday. And the pipe bombs that were found at this Marine sponsored, I think a marathon in New Jersey. Uh, And then of course you had the stabbing that we talked about in Minnesota, the nine people that were stabbed by the Somali guy, whether that's, Related or not, I don't know. In, in, uh, but it's know, interesting how this stuff happens <laughs> when we're dealing with a situation where oh, we accidentally bombed Syrian army troops and the Russians are pissed at us now because we had this tenuous ceasefire agreement. See how complicated and convoluted all this is? Well, and that's my problem with <laughs> everything that's going on today is so convoluted. I know so many people that are so like die hard in their opinions like well this is wrong and this is how it is and this is what's going on this is what we need to do how do you know how could you possibly know yeah. like adam you're one of the smartest people i know and you've looked into all this stuff and you're confused about yes it. Like, yes <laughs> yes i mean even we were just talking to dr furnish i mean you look at the situation in turkey and you look at how he was talking about how uh, fatula gulen and erdogan were once friends they saw saw eye to eye to each other with each other and but just because of this subtle difference in how they view how they want to put their empires together all of a sudden one is on outs with the other so you have everybody's always jockeying for position everybody's you gets what they want and and I want to make something clear here I don't think that I don't put up Vladimir Putin as as a paragon of virtue he certainly is oh for sure no he's done plenty of bad stuff in russia uh, you know look at the guy that you know look at the guy they poisoned with the highly radioactive materials you know in in britain where it finally came out like what a, a year or so ago that they actually did do it big surprise everybody knew you know so he definitely has his hands in a lot of dirty shit and he's I just think that we're just better at the dirty stuff 
Like, I don't think that we're any more innocent. Well, also, too, we're here. And they're there. And it's like, we we just make it seem like we're, I think our government makes it seem like we're the innocent people. That's we're the ones saying. that are yeah. always, you know, and, and, and so we get the, we get the propaganda foisted down our throats here and over there they get their own propaganda but they but you know we make we call the pet the we're the kettle calling the pot black all the all the time i mean look what happened in uh when the uh, the russians went into the ukraine well i mean john Kerry gets up there and says um this is illegal. This is not a just war. You, you can't invade country. You just can't invade countries. Well, John Kerry being a Democrat, well, sure, he's a different um, administration, different party than George W. Bush. But he voted for the Iraq war, which was the same thing. Right. You know, how can we, I mean, how can we look and justify and say, tell another country you can't do anything? And, and Putin is this one of those guys in one of those countries that knows like you guys, you, Americans, you got, you guys are full of shit. You can't look at me and tell me this when you do the same thing. I mean, look, if something happened in Mexico and they descended into chaos, we would be moving our troops in. We have historically in the past, we're right next door to Mexico. They're right next door to Ukraine. Right. And you have the ele- the ethnic element and you have all these things that go into it. And, it, you know, I, but but Putin definitely has done bad things, like the whole pussy riot stuff. <laughs> his alliance with the Orthodox Church—that is, you know, a lot of people celebrate, especially among evangelicals. They love Putin. That's why they want Trump because you know he's going to bring Christianity to the forefront. You know. He's already said, you know, we need to have one religion and one church and one uh, one country. You know, that's like saying, Ein Volk, Ein Reich, Ein Fuhrer. You know, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's just, oh, you know, it's exactly that's scary stuff. Yeah. But, you know, Hillary Clinton, she is not an alternative. What do you think about her collapsing? How about this? Oh. Let's talk about her health. I wish you would have hit her head on something. <laughs> 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 On September 11th, by the way, man, that that's that's God's karma working right there. <laughs> well, working hard enough. I and, and I really think that this is a concern. <laughs> I, I think it's a concern. Like we, you know, well, it's a concern. Can, if it, who, who's uh, who's her running mate? Tim Kaine. Yeah, yeah. Do we want that as president? Well, it's kind of weird, man, because it's like I, I, I've had this discussion with Dr. Future not too long ago. We were talking about this and, you know, it's it's kind of like both of these candidates have put their vice presidential candidates. These, both of these guys have a ton of experience. You know, Mike Pence was governor of Indiana. I think Kane was governor of Virginia. So it's almost just like. Are they actually, if either one of them gets in, are they actually going to wield power? Or are they just going to delegate it to the vice president? Well, I, I could see Trump doing that. I could see Trump saying, I don't want to deal with it, Pence. You take care of it. I'm going to go make some deals. I've, you know, I, I've always felt that. I've, I mean, since I was born, I felt that way about the president. Like, you know, I was born under the Reagan administration and, you know, what it yeah. is okay or whatever. But like that bled into the bushes and they're, they're all. 
they're all there because they have powerful backers and they have agendas and they're they're more of a, a face and a figurehead than anything else like, right and i don't think it's any different with the candidates that we have now there's other people that are behind them that are pulling the strings pushing stuff and you know maybe their vice presidents are maybe they're the brains behind the brawn or whatever like, yeah you know, we, here's your face and here's your people that are communicating and doing everything but vice presidents have sourced have have ceased to be a non-entity They've had more and more influence as time has gone. Yeah, and I think there's a reason for that. I think it's because they're they're leading the cabinet of intellectualism that's yeah. actually behind this like poster child for whatever party we happen to have. I mean, look at Dick Cheney. I mean, everybody knows he really ran the country. Yeah, well, he did a great job. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, just the whole thing about her health, I think, is concerning. I think you should. I mean, are we going to elect somebody that's going to be is is really really sick? And this whole thing that she had pneumonia, I mean, um, Micah on on one of it, not Grayling Report, but this other show that he does, Middle Theory, he played this whole like montage of Hillary, it's just Hillary Clinton coughing, <laughs> you know, and it's just, it's just <coughs> you know, it's just it, it's it's ridiculous, and I I really think yeah, it's not. I don't think it's a conspiracy theory. Now, her having a bottle, a body double, I think that's probably a conspiracy theory. But yeah. then again, they do that. Or, that happens. Or her being a reptilian and her like you know image sure. modification yeah. stuff yes. is glitching out. Like yes, she's gonna go like <laughs> eat a couple more souls or something, dude. She yeah. for, she yeah. forgot that morning. She's low battery. Yeah, <laughs> her battery's running low. But some people have looked at it and said that you know said the fact that she may have Parkinson's disease. That's degenerative. And if she has Parkinson's disease, then she's not going to be president for a long time. Well, I, I hope uh, that you're right. <laughs> let's just throw out that there's a lot of options. You have options. Yes. There's options. Yes. Know. Even besides, though Gary Johnson doesn't know where Hillary Aleppo Trump, is. There's options. I've never even seen a Hillary supporter uh, before I went to Ohio. I've never actually even like seen one in real life. Yeah, this is yeah, that's the thing. I mean, even among people that even here in Nashville, very democratic city. Yeah. I haven't seen too many Clinton signs. Now I did in New York City, but I haven't seen you know, I haven't seen people that are just crazy about her. Yeah. You I, know? I think my I think my parents are Hillary supporters, but they're real quiet about it. I think they're just I think they're more just like they're low key. Right. They're more like I'm scared of Trump. <laughs> And they are I yeah. support Hillary. And I think a lot of people are going to vote oh, for Hillary because they don't want Trump in. Honestly. The, these same people that are responsible for the gas shortage are voting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Let's uh let's explain that real quick because that was kind of we weren't we we've we we've run out of gas basically in Nashville. Uh colonial pipeline that serves a good portion of the southeast however only gets us about 40 percent of our gas here <laughs> in nashville uh i had a i think it was like a leak or something in alabama and they saw that it was leaking the pipeline people and said okay we gotta shut the pipeline down and we're gonna fix it before it became a huge ecological or environmental disaster right they did the right thing well, people here in Nashville, and apparently, as we were talking to Dr. Furnish, where he's in the Atlanta area, said so people ran out of gas there. But people here just freaked out. In 2008, we had a similar thing happen. Remember that? Yep. Where people just 
just, I mean, that wasn't even like a big deal. I don't even remember what caused that. Gas prices went up like a dollar a gallon. And it, it, yeah. was, it was instability in Iraq. Was it? Yeah. And people were filling it. The thing, the problem is people are filling up extra gas tanks. You know, you've got three, three quarters of a tank and you're filling, you're topping it off. All those kind of things. And we caused the gas shortage that probably never should have happened. That they warned us against. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, it, they, I got this email. I got this email yesterday. When they see a snowflake, they run to the store and get bread and milk, too. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's pretty common for the entire South. I saw this email yesterday I thought was interesting. Uh, statement from TEMA director. That's Tennessee Emergency Management Agency. But then again... Can't really trust those guys, right? Director Patrick Sheehan on Tennessee's petroleum availability. We want to reassure Tennesseans there is petroleum available to meet the needs of consumers. Governor Haslam's emergency declaration issued on Friday ensures the transportation and delivery of petroleum to convenience stores and retailers in Tennessee. Tennessee's consumers need to maintain their normal driving and fuel buying habits. If consumers fill up unnecessarily, top off their tanks when they aren't close to aren't even close to empty, and fill multiple containers at the pumps, which people are doing, then our petroleum retailers would not be able to keep up with the demand of the fuel supply. Even on a normal day, Tennessee's petroleum industry as a whole would have a difficult time keeping up with the current demands being placed on Tennessee's fuel supply. The Colonial Pipeline is not the only supplier of petroleum in Tennessee. There are other pipelines contributing to the state's fuel supply. Governor Haslam's executive order further adds in keeping fuel supply to Tennessee as transporters have extra time to deliver to pumps. If consumers maintain their normal driving and fuel buying habits there will be enough capacity in tennessee's petroleum supply system to meet our needs and they did it you know what's even worse what's even worse is i was trying to drive home the other night and i couldn't even do it because the road was blocked because there was a line in the street of people waiting to pull into the gas station (laughs) so thank you for making me late oh my god yeah, if our traffic isn't bad enough. I, I started cussing at some woman. Like, I didn't even know what was going on. I was just, like, normally going to get gas. Yeah. And some some woman sped in and, like, cut me off at the pump while I was, like, Save sitting the there. World! I was, like, sitting there obviously waiting for it. So I started cussing at her out the window and honking and everything else, and she just ignored me. <laughs> How we do it on time, Rob? Oh, we're we're up there. You're you're way okay. over. <laughs> well, only one thing I want to add. I really want to figure this out in the next uh, few weeks. Just what the hell is a biogender? <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> I just saw this on Facebook, and uh, I sent it to Luke yesterday. All Akira's friends. It's a picture of somebody eating grass and leaves off a tree. And it says, just another day being biogender. I feel so amazing. I love being connected to nature. I'm a reincarnation of a dinosaur. I'm so happy. Thank you all for being accepting. And tell my haters, please stop. Love you all. The way they've taken emojis. Like, they've taken veganism like out into the backyard, like they're just grazers. I, I don't know. I th- yeah, I think they like to graze, and somehow that's become a gender now. But they this, probably- is, a, this is an identity. <laughs> You identify yourself as a biogender or a reincarnated <laughs> a brontosaurus. Dinosaur. Need a fourth bathroom now. So, so do they just like whenever they get tired of being biogender, do they just go back into their houses and like live a normal life at the end of the day? Like, <laughs> <laughs> I'm turn on hey man, yeah. hey man, you're Carno. You wouldn't understand, okay? 
I haven't hung out in East Nashville enough, I guess. You wouldn't understand. <laughs> All right, Luke. Enjoy your furry party that's coming up here pretty soon. <laughs> I'll, furry I'll party part details. two. Yes, please do. Please do. And uh, uh, next time, guys, we have on Mark Devlin. We're going to be calling the UK on this one. And we're going to be talking about musical truth. And we're going to talk about mind control. We're going to talk about whether Paul is actually dead. Yes. Satanism in the music industry. Sweet. All kinds of good stuff. I'll be there. Well, it's at eleven o'clock in the morning. We oh, gotta do God. we gotta record it. So <laughs> all right. Luke might be there. Rob, tell everybody <laughs> where they can find us. You can find us on our website. It's www.conspiranormal.com. Uh there's links to iTunes and all the good stuff on there. All right. And Stitcher. Uh we are on Spreaker too. Yep, all Stitcher, that, iTunes stuff. Anywhere you can find podcasts. And please, guys, uh, please leave us a review. Please give us all five stars. Yeah, if you like the show, let us know. Uh, Tell us what you think. All right. Luke, take us out. Sometimes (laughs) when you're lonely. (laughs) (laughs) And a biogender. Just put on Conspiranormal. पहचान हो जीना आसान हो जान पहचान हो जीना आसान हो दिल को चुराने वालों आंख न चुराओ नाम तो बताओ जान पहचान हो जीना आसान हो जान पहचान हो जीना आसान हो दिल को चुराने वालों आंख न चुराओ नाम तो बताओ जान पहचान हो जीना आसान हो शाम जवान यूं ना चली जाए आती है शाम जवान यूं ना चली जाए फिर से ना आएगी या किसी के बुलाए फिर से ना आएगी या किसी के बुलाए फिर से ना आएगी या किसी के बुलाए जान पहचान हो जीना आसान हो जान पहचान हो 
All your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park.
for the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.